the bill so that you can uh, find out what is in it. What? If you like your doctor, you will be able to keep your doctor. What difference at this point does it make? If you're looking to make sense out of what's going on in the world today, then you've come to the right place. Welcome to Southern Sense Talk Radio with your host, Annie, the Radio Chickie Bellis, and featuring Curtis C.S. Bennett and the most interesting guests that you'll find anywhere on Internet radio. And you can join the show and let your voice be heard by dialing 917 889 3675. Relax and remember, Southern Sense is common sense. strikes, what's your first impulse? If your answer is run to the grocery store, you're likely to find chaos and plenty of empty shelves. So how do you avoid this? Well, it's simple. You use today to make a plan to prepare for things that may happen. It's a hurricane, earthquake, blizzard, or even social unrest, especially in today's political environment. The practical place to start is by storing up food in your home. And I use my Patriot Supply for my food storage. If you don't have an emergency food supply, it's time to do so. Here's a great item that makes it really simple. A two-week food kit that comes in a rugged tote. And it's only $75 when you go to my special website, preparewithsouthernsense.com, or call 888-441-7290. This food kit includes breakfast, lunch, and dinners that will last up to 25 years on your storage shelves. So order now and prepare yourself, and then rest easy. So it's very simple. Just call 888-441-7290 or go to preparewithsouthernsense.com. You know what? Let's make it even more simple than that. You're listening to my show, and it's called Southern Sense, and you know you put a dash in the middle, southern-sense.com, 
and click on the icon for My Patriot Food. Well, if you want to insist, you can still go to 888-441-7290 or go to my website, Southern Sense, put a dash in the middle, southern-sense.com. Good Friday afternoon. Welcome back to another adventure here on Southern Sense. You're listening live on Blog Talk Radio, SHR Media, Lone Star Daily News, up on iTunes, Stitcher, Spreaker, YouTube, Facebook, and now up on iHeart. I'm your hostess with the hostess, the Radio Chick, and, oh, sorry, Radio Chickadee. I have to make sure I trademark correct, <laughs> along with my guest co-host, Florida State Representative Mike Hill. Good afternoon, Mikey. How are you today? I'm doing great, Hanny. How are you today? Oh, whacking out as normal. You know, the whole world seems upside down. If you've been watching the news lately uh, with the um, the gentleman that was killed in Minneapolis, Minnesota, and the rioting that is going on, I mean, I was sitting there watching it on the news, and my mother was trying to comprehend it. And how do you explain to a woman who's going to be 88 uh, in a month and a half um, – why the world is so upside down. My goodness. I mean, they're destroying their own neighborhood, the places where they, their family members are employed, uh, apartments that their family lives in. They're destroying their own neighborhood. It makes no sense. It makes no sense, Annie. I mean, it was a tragedy when we saw the video of that uh, man being killed by the police. I mean, that was terrible. It was horrific. But in no way does it um, suggest that those who are acting like thugs, setting things on fire, breaking things, stealing things, there is no justification for that simply because that man was killed. It, It was wrong. It needs to be investigated. And if they are found uh, guilty, they should be uh, charged as such. And whatever the full extent of the law will allow for their punishment, that should be done. But that in no way justifies um, uh, burning down buildings and breaking windows and stealing things and acting like hoodlums. Um, There's no cause for that at all. No, there's not. And I watched that video, and, you know, me being a retired cop, I'm going, why? Why did he have his knee on the guy's neck? Everything in any police manual tells you that is not what you do. Chokeholds are out, pressing someone down on the neck. I mean, the guy was under control. He was handcuffed. The rule of thumb is if the guy is under control and handcuffed, back off. But that's not what this officer did. So he rightly deserves to face the full justice of the law, not street yes. justice, not, not yes. lynching. Well, we're going to have a lot to talk about today. Um, we've got some great guests, Mike. Unfortunately, you can only stay with us for the first hour, and I know you have to uh, dash off. But I've got a dear friend of mine, Jim Simpson, who's running for Maryland District Number 2 seat, um, for Congress, he's going to be joining us because uh, his primary is coming up this coming Tuesday. So I want people to give him a, a push. Um, I have a neighbor of mine. He lives across the street from me, actually. So I met him at a funeral of my other neighbor uh, just a couple of months ago, John Bebbington. He wrote a book called Rawhead. It's a very good historical and military novel that actually points out uh, the wages of war and the effect on the soldiers fighting, and the people at home. Very interesting book. Um, we've got Bob Lee, who was the 
uh, game and wildlife enforcement officer. He's got two great books out telling about the stories of game wardens, and some of these are really scary. And then we're going to stop uh, the end of the show with Dr. Lee Edwards from the Heritage Foundation. So it seems like the GOP is sending me uh, guests to listen to every week, and now the Heritage Foundation is sending me guests every week. I'm getting up there in the world, Mike. You know that? Well, I'll tell you, Annie, well-deserved. And you have a great lineup today, and I'm excited to, uh, to, to discuss things with your guests. Yeah, and I'm going to push your campaign because you are also running for re-election. Tell people where they can find you and help support your election. They can go to me at votemikehill.com. That's votemikehill.com. Um, they can learn all about me and my campaign. I am running for office now in Florida State House District 1. And uh, if they would even be so kind and generous to want to donate to my campaign, that would be much appreciated. Absolutely. Now we've got to get John, um, I'm sorry, Bob Lee on your case, because I think he's in your district, I believe. I think he's up in that area. You cover Putnam County? No, I'm up in Escambia County. So I'm I'm farther Uh, north and west. I, I, I touch the Alabama border. Ooh, you're a panhandle guy. <laughs> That's right. The most conservative part of the state. <laughs> At we, least there's we one pull part. Presidents, yeah, we pull presidents across the finish line almost every time because we're in a central time zone. And so our um, our polls close an hour later than the rest of the state. And here's the news trying to call Florida, and usually because they're a leftist media, they try to call it for the Democrat, and then the panhandle votes come in, and all of a sudden it goes for the Republican. <laughs> well, this is going to be an interesting election season. I think it's going to rival the hanging chad that's centered around Florida with the Bush and, and Al Gore. <laughs> We'll I'll tell see. you, Annie, we'll one see. thing we, we have to get a handle on is that ballot harvesting, um, where an individual will gather a box load of ballots and take it down to the supervisor of elections office, and then we start seeing election results changing. And it always changes to favor the left for some reason. So we have to stop that ballot harvesting, and we have to stop this move where they want to do um, vote by mail. Uh, again, it just it, it is too easy to commit fraud when you send all your your ballots in by mail instead of those who truly need it, such as our military who are deployed, or those who might be uh, 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 at home and and unable to to get out or in a nursing home. That's who it should be used for, but not for those who just want to uh, who don't want to. Uh, get up off the couch and go vote at at the supervisor of elections office or polling station. Yeah, there's, I believe it's a total of 13 states that do have um, ballot harvesting, South Carolina being one of them. And the most obvious one is California, because we've seen whole districts change from solidly Republican to voting Democratic because of the ballot harvesting. And in 2016, there was case after case after case where they just pulled in homeless off the street and filled out the ballots for them. 
Uh, it was really horrible. Uh, here in South Carolina, an individual can collect up to 12 ballots. And once, once it leaves your hands, how do you know that ballot isn't changed? If that information wasn't copied and the votes were changed on you? Uh, this is going to be something really, really big we've got to watch out for. But good news is, is that there was a highly Democratic town in Virginia. And on the city council seats, there were four seats open. All four seats turned from Democrat to Republican. I think middle America, mainstream America has actually woken up. The silent majority is not going to be silent this election period. You're right, Annie. And the same thing happened out in California recently where that one um, congressperson, last name is Hill, no relation to me, who left office in disgrace because of her um, alleged sexual conduct. Um, She was a Democrat and a Republican took that seat in a special election. But get this, Annie, this is what's so amazing. He won because of ballot harvesting in California. And you say, what? Well, what happened was the Christian population woke up and churches were gathering ballots and taking them down to the supervisor of elections office and a Republican won that Democrat-controlled seat. Amazing, amazing. It's going to be a very, very interesting election cycle. And I swear, I've already had Lindsey Graham's office call my house twice. <laughs> and I said, Excuse Oh, me. really? You don't want to call me again. I said, You don't want to call me again because Michael LaPierre has my vote. <laughs> I'm not voting for Lindsey Graham. I really did say Lindsey Graham to the poor girl. <laughs> she said, Oh, my oh, no. God, I got a nut here. <laughs> well, Anyway, I want to welcome everyone that is listening in over on Facebook. We've got the room open on Facebook as well as here on Blog Talk Radio. We've got a chat room open here also. Uh, for those that listen to the show, know that we start off each and every show with a dedication to a fallen hero or heroes. And today's dedication is going to go out to Honolulu police officers, Kaulaiki Kalaman and Tiffany Victoria Bailon Enriquez. Their end of tour was January 19th of this year. And this is coming from several different sources, one of them being Officer Down Memorial page that you can find at odmp.org. Officer Kaya Laki Kalamaya and Officer Tiffany Victoria Enriquez were shot and killed while responding to a stabbing call at a home at 3015 Hibiscus Drive shortly after 9 a.m. on January 19th. An elderly woman had filed eviction paperwork against her tenant, who suffered from mental health issues and had been falsely calling 911 repeatedly in recent weeks. The landlord and tenant had become engaged in an argument in which the man stabbed the woman. Officer Enriquez was one of the first officers who arrived at the scene and tended to the victim outside of the home. As she and other officers walked toward the house, the man opened fire, killing her. Officer Kalama was shot moments later as he and others arrived at the scene. Both officers were shot in areas above their bulletproof vest. After shooting the officers, the man barricaded himself inside of his home and set it on fire. The flames spreading to neighboring homes, destroying a total of seven homes. The man and two women were presumed dead in the fire. 
Officer Kalama had served with the Honolulu Police Department for nine years. He is survived by his wife and teenage son. Officer Enriquez was a U.S. Air Force Reserves veteran. He had served with the Honolulu Police Department for seven years and had previously served with the Montgomery County Sheriff's Office in Tennessee. She is survived by three daughters and one grandson. And this is from Post Guam. A former Guam resident, Tiffany Victoria Enriquez, was one of two Honolulu Police Department officers fatally shot on Sunday, January 19th in the morning in what Honolulu officials call a senseless and selfish act. The police officer working alongside Enriquez was a nine-year veteran of the force, Officer Kailaka Kalama. Tiffany Victoria Bilan graduated from Simon Sanchez High School in 1999 and later married John Andrew Enriquez. She had served as a police officer in Hawaii for seven years. Former Guam resident and fellow Simon, Simon Sanchez High School graduate Jennifer Borgia Johnson could barely express her sorrow. As teenagers, she worked with her Enriquez at Paris Fitness in 1998 and both moved to Hawaii in mid-2000. She described Enriquez as a vibrant person who always lit up the room. She was just vibrant, very loving, and very caring individual, Johnson said during a brief interview. Johnson said their families were close and their children go to school together. The last conversation she had with Enriquez, she said, was a couple of weeks ago about their daughter's graduation and how they're growing up so fast. She's just gone too soon, Johnson said, while fighting back tears. I can't talk right now. I can't. I can't. It's hard to talk about her right now. Honolulu Police Chief Susan Ballard, during a press conference, said both officers were parents, and they were the first Honolulu Police officers to die in the line of duty since 2012. Jerry J. Hannell, 69, has been identified as a suspect in the killing of the two officers and the stabbing of a woman. Hanel allegedly stabbed his landlord around 9.30 a.m., shot the responding officers, and then set fire to the home on Hibiscus Drive, Hawaii. Hawaii News Now and Honolulu Star Advertiser reported. Homeowner Luis Kane was trying to evict Hanel when he became violent and stabbed her. The blaze spread to at least four other homes and at least one police car, according to Hawaii News Now. Hanel is believed to have died in the fire. Jonathan Burge, a lawyer who represented Hanel in several disputes with neighbors, told the Associated Press he did not consider Hanel violent, but that he was kind of a quirky guy and had problems. Hanel thought that the government was listening in on his phone, Burge said. Birch told the AP that Hanel did handyman work at Kane's house in exchange for living there rent-free, but they had a disagreement when Hanel's dog died and Kane would not let him get another. And this is from KHON2. Friends and family gathered at Sandy Beach to play tribute to Officer Kayalaka Kalama and one of two officers killed in the line of duty responding to a deadly shooting and fire in Diamond Head. 
The candlelight vigil for Officer Calamar started at 6 p.m. Calamar's family said they chose the spot for the vigil because it was his favorite beach from when he was young. Even back then, his family said, he took pride in making sure that everyone was okay. That's just who he was. He took care of everybody, family, friends. He makes sure everybody was safe, having a good time, said Kiwi Kalama, Officer Kaluki Kalama's brother. His family and friends said January 19th is a day they will never forget. It was the day when he was nine years old as a Honolulu police officer. He put, oh, his day nine years ago as a Honolulu police officer, he put on his uniform and didn't make it home. He heard on the police radio that an officer was in trouble and crossed from East Oahu District to Waikiki District, knowing that he was putting himself in danger, said Grant Pagarian, Officer Kalamar's academy classmate. Pagarian said even then, Kalamar was protect, looking to protect others. KK had the composure in mind to reassure another officer who was there. He really didn't know that other officer, Paragenian said, but Officer Kalamar told him, don't worry, bro, I got your back. Don't worry, bro, I got your back. Many showed up along the beach and even on the side of the road to watch as the vigil took place. Helicopters with Honolulu Fire Department and Honolulu Police Department flew overhead to, office, to honor Officer Kalamar. Even Police Chief Susan Bellar and Mayor Kirk Caldwell attended. Those gathered lit candles and spread flowers into the sea in Officer Kalamar's honor. They say he will always be their hero, and they want people to know the kind of man he was. Just everybody should remember him. Remember my cousin was a hero, Lois Kalamar said. 34-year-old Kaleleki Kalamar was survived by his wife and teenage son. A spokesman for the family said that there was a private funeral to be held later in March. Today's show is dedicated to these two brave officers. It's also dedicated to all those that serve as first responders, be they law enforcement, firefighters, or emergency services. It's also dedicated to the brave men and women who serve in our military from the birth of this nation through today and into its promising future. We dedicate to them this song by Todd Allen Herndon, my name is America. May God bless each and every one. Born in the grip of oppression, I fought for my liberty. I paid with the blood of my people. Freedom has never been free. Now my door's always open to dreamers and friends. When I'm attacked, I protect and
gave it to me. They believe in the virtues I stand for, my respect for humanity. Now I'm challenged by tyrants who envy my power. America, and you can get that at the com. All right. Um, we're waiting for our guest to call in. You're here listening to Southern Sense here on Blog Talk Radio, SHR Media, the Lone Star Daily News, up in iTunes, Stitcher, Spreaker, YouTube, Facebook, and ah, the heck with it. Go to the name of the show, put a hyphen in the middle, southern-sense.com. Of course, I'm here, the radio chickadee, Annie, along with my guest co-host, Florida State Representative Mike Hill. And, Mike, we do have our guest in on the line. He's also running for office. He's running for office out of the great state of Maryland, or once was a great state, and hopefully it will be once again. Let's welcome Mike, Jim Simpson, um, onto the show. Good afternoon, Jim. How are you? Hey, Ann. Great to be with you. Thanks for having me. Yeah, it's been a while since we talked. It's been a couple of months. Things get hectic over here. <laughs> but uh, you're well, running yeah, for Congress at <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we had that conversation. Jeez, I can't believe I've yeah. known you now ten years. Can you believe it's been that long? Jeez, is that is that it? Oh my god, amazing! <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Wow. But you're running for Congress out of Maryland District Number Two, and you got yourself a tough fight. You got a primary coming in on this coming Tuesday. Um, I saw a whole slew of people that are in the Republican primary. Whoa. Seven. Seven people. Only yep. seven. No, <laughs> Only seven. Not a big deal. Yeah, and 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 it's all in alphabetical order, so I'm the second to the last <laughs> in, in, on the list. So 
poses all kinds of interesting challenges. You can't go out and meet people face to face. It's not going to be uh, a regular voting. You know, we got a mail-in vote, so most of our communication is by mail or by phone. All kinds of interesting aspects to this race, shall we say? And and even the way even the way people can vote is so crazy. I had to call the state board of elections and have them walk me through it very slowly and carefully, so I could then put up a blog post and explain it to other people because it's confusing as hell. Well, I was on your website, which is your name, Jim Simpson for Congress dot com, and you do go into a great detail. Uh, one thing I noticed on the website, you focused on three main topics. You did put up other issues and put in your answers yeah. to questions from the media, uh, but you concentrate yeah. on three main issues, which is immigration, crime, and economy. Why those three issues? Well, because I think they're hot-button issues in Maryland and pretty much everywhere. I mean, illegal immigration, refugee resettlement, but especially in Maryland, illegal immigration, it's a sanctuary state. Illegals get in-state tuition for college. Uh, they're given preferential treatment over Maryland citizens. Uh, uh, they steal um, Maryland businesses out of citizens' hands because they can start businesses without bothering with all of the you know, legal uh, regulations and taxes that legal businesses have to pay. They hire a stable of uh Illegal aliens who will work at, um, you know, sublegal wages. And uh, so it's impossible to compete with them for businesses that have been around for a long time, you know, especially in the trades. And, you know, that's where especially the, the minority communities in inner cities make a lot of their living. And it's, it's pretty outrageous. You know, you have the, the black leaders of Baltimore City kowtowing to illegal aliens and opening the door to them, making it impossible for ICE to find them. And now the state attorney general has announced that he will join with others in the effort to prevent from arresting illegal aliens when they go to court for one reason or another. It's just simply outrageous. And they're, they're driving people out of the state. So it's a huge issue. Well, you know, it, I've been watching Maryland for the last couple of years, and the rise yeah. in crime is astounding. And you write yeah. about this in your on your website and in your blog, and the, the numbers are phenomenal. Now, we were talking about the rise of rape, and we're seeing gang members that are illegal alien gang members uh, being arrested yep. multiple times for it. And, but it's just a revolving oh, yeah. door justice. Yeah, no, it really is. It's a very um, criminal-favoring state uh, judicial system and city judicial system. And, I mean, there are a lot of people in jail, but a lot of people walk and they get away with literally murder, and then they walk or get light sentences. Um, You know, it's a very victim-hostile system. And 
you know, it, it's really an outrage. The, the murder rates in Baltimore City compare with murder rates in some third world countries. And, and they're not doing anything about it. They just keep on proposing the same things. They keep on knuckling down on the police. And, you know, the police force here is not perfect. They're like every place else. But, you know, they can't do their jobs, and they are hundreds of officers short of what they need because nobody wants to work here. You know, so it's it, it's really it's criminal what these people are doing, and we have to turn that around. We have to give, you know, Baltimoreans some opportunity, and Marylanders generally, you know, a, a, a better system that's more reliable and more uh, friendly towards victims of crime and get these people off the streets because they're, they're awful. MS-13 is filtering into Baltimore County, where I live, and, and many other locations. The second largest population of MS-13 in the country next to California a fact that the state police a few years ago weren't even aware of when I told them about it. Um, and the, the Democrat that I'm running against, Dutch Rupersberger, said in a, a town hall at one point, when asked what they should do about MS-13, he said, oh, you should open your doors and let them in your house, open your hearts, and, you know, we'll all have come by out. I mean, this is the kind of lunacy you get from these. Uh, Jim yeah. Simpson, this is Mike Hill. I'm a state representative in Florida. And uh, I have a question for you. I, I read on your website yes. that you're an economist. And, yes, so, and so you would understand um, how an economy works. But before yes. I ask you my question, um, yes. I have a, a little beef to pick with you. You, okay. you said a minute ago that people are leaving Maryland because of the yep. politics there, and that's correct. Here's my beef. They're coming down to Florida. And we, <laughs> I knew that was coming. <laughs> we, we, we have a state that is slowly turning purple. Uh, Jim, yeah, right. you're going to force us to build a wall. We're going to have to do it. <laughs> but, 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 but here's my question. You, uh, you you said on your website, you stated correctly, that manufacturing is moving back to America because of yep. the tax cuts that President yep. Trump put into place and yep. also because of uh, the deregulation that he is doing. Yeah. And, and before this yep. COVID-19, we were seeing a tremendous economic boom, and I believe it's going to come back once we get past this yep. insanity. But yep. here's my question. Um, President Trump cut the corporate tax rate. I think it was down to, was it 22% or 25%? 21, yeah, 22 thereabouts. Do, I don't remember. Do, do you think it should be cut any lower? And if so, why? Or if not, why? Well, yeah, that's a, that's a complicated question. I would say, you know, we a lot of us argue that corporate tax rate is double taxation. Uh, because you're taxing all the people that work for the corporation for the money they make, and then you're taxing the corporation on top of that. But by the same token, corporations uh, get limited liability. And so, uh, you know, if their liability is limited for things that they do, 
somebody's going to pay for that, and it usually winds up being the government. So I guess there's justification for some corporate tax rates, but I would like to see it lower, and I would also like to see, um, you know, ever since Kennedy was elected, he proposed something called enterprise zones, which are now under President Trump called opportunity zones, and there are lots of them in Maryland, but they're sitting fallow. There's nothing really happening with them. And I've seen the impact of opportunity zones in a town right next to the town where I grew up, Stanford, Connecticut. And that was a, it was as, as bad or worse than Baltimore in the early 70s. And they did their own uh, type of opportunity zone by basically slashing uh, taxes for companies that would relocate there. And now, um, Stanford is a streaming metropolis, very, you know, affluent with all kinds of corporate headquarters there. Same thing happened in Delaware. My economic advisor at the University of Delaware was the person who created the uh, economic revival for former Governor DuPont. And that took the state of Delaware from the bottom of the 50 states in um bond ratings to the top and that's the kind of thing that i'd like to see and you don't have to go you know people talk about well we got to dump lots of money into this that no you don't all you need to do is offer tax incentives to companies to come in with the promise that they will relocate in these uh you know downtrodden communities and hire directly from the local population they do that they get a huge tax cut it's a big advantage, and they hire out of the community, and, it, and the community prospers. And that's the kind of thing I'd like to see. That's the kind of thing I support. Well, that's the opposite of what AOC wanted. Look what she did to Amazon. Yeah, right? Exactly. <laughs> well, you know, in, in, the, in the questions that the Baltimore Sun asked me what my position was on the Green New Deal, I said it was written by a New York bartender with no more understanding of global warming than a clam you know and that's basically <laughs> her intellectual level you know the, the, no no insult to clams intended you know? <laughs> oh she's gonna love you when you get to congress <laughs> well, i like her spirit but she's good she's totally just off the rails nuts and doesn't have a clue what she's talking about. <laughs> well, I want to let the listeners know that, Jim, you're also the author of The Red-Green Axis, that everyone's talking about that book. Uh, so you're not just an economist. You're, you're all around uh, with us. Yeah. Um, so I'm telling people, pick up that Red-Green book because you understand what's going on out there. Um, yeah. I want to yeah. go on back to the immigration because you talked about uh, the things you want to see happen in immigration of things that you would support. And one of them I found interesting is that uh, you said restrict immigration to only those willing to adopt American laws, culture, and values. It seems like the last several decades, at least maybe the last 50 years, the opposite has been happening. Instead of becoming a melting pot, like America is intended to be, where everyone is equal under the eyes of the law and no culture has preference over any others, we see 
the opposite, multiculturalism, which is tearing us apart. Yeah, no, absolutely. Well, you know, it's our culture, it's our Christian heritage that made our country great. It wasn't white supremacy, it wasn't white people, it was the fact that we had this Judeo-Christian heritage that gave us a solid grounding in principled leadership, principled government, limited government, constitutional government. And, you know, I'm not ashamed of our culture. I'm very proud of our culture. And the trouble is we bring in cultures from all over the world that have no understanding of those concepts. And uh, they are not interested in adapting our laws, our cultures, and uh, our culture and our traditions. And that creates problems. Just like the U.S. English, you know, we, we need to support U.S. English so everybody can speak the same language. Right now, there are over 400 languages spoken in public schools throughout the United States. And in some uh, school jurisdictions, there are over 100 uh, languages spoken in public schools, many of which uh, nobody's ever even heard of. There are no translators for how you properly teach students when you are faced with that kind of conundrum. How do you do it? It, it, It's nearly impossible. And small communities complaining about it all over the country and nobody listens to them. And it's infuriating. Everybody says, oh yeah, multiculturalism, diversity is our strength. No, diversity was created by the radical left as a way to balkanize our nation and uh, dilute our founding principles to the point where people who understand it and believe in it and support it just just become lost in the crowd. You know, it, 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 if you look at it from an economic standpoint with this multiculturalism in our schools, if the school has someone that does not speak English, English is a second language to them, they're required yeah. to have someone that can act as an interpreter and to teach them English. So if you have a school district that has over 100 different languages, even if you have a school district that's five different languages, that's one individual that now has to center on that one student. Where we have classrooms that have 35 to 40 kids in it, how do you concentrate on only one student out of the whole entire school population? It's it's, it's economically not feasible. Yeah. No, and then and then multiply that by hundreds. You know, in some jurisdictions, there's close to 40% of the students that speak dozens of different languages. And not only is it an impossible task to educate these people, it's really expensive because you need to hire the translators, you need to hire the teachers, And in that Red Green Access book of mine, the Red Green Access 2.0, I describe some of the added costs that uh, foreign uh, students who don't speak English place on school districts that are already screaming for money. And and it, it, you know, it it raises the cost of of those uh, schools, you know, 20% or more. And, And it's just impossible. It's impossible, and, and, and Jim, it's outrageous. Yeah, 
I'm sorry, Jim. I'm sorry, sorry to interrupt you. This is Florida Representative Mike Hill, and in our last legislative session, there was a campaign going on where people came to the Capitol, Tallahassee, and were presenting a petition to get us to allow students to test um, or to take the advanced placement test and the ACT, SAT, and so forth uh, in Spanish instead of in English. And I, I pushed back against that, and, and this was my rationale why, and I want to get your take on it. English yep. is the international language of finance. And the yep. more proficient you are at speaking English, the more money you make. I don't yep. care if you're an American, Brazilian, South African. Sure. The more proficient you are at English, the better and more money you can make. What, what, what do you say to that statement? Well, I, I agree. I mean, that's a practically... That's a practical statement that's true, but I'd go further. By offering it in Spanish, you're really violating the civil rights of every other person that speaks every one of those over 400 languages in this country. You are violating their civil rights. You're really breaking the law because the Civil Rights Act is not supposed to discriminate. And so if you're going to provide... Uh, uh, tests in Spanish, you should also be provide them in uh, Tagalog, in Korean, in Japanese, uh, in Malawi, in, in, in Sudanese, uh, in every language that you can name. It's, it's, it's a insult to the many other peoples of different cultures that we have here that they have to struggle learning English to get the same treatment but because Hispanics have are a large and growing political force in this country and by the way Hispanic is not an actual uh, ethnic term it was something created by the Office of Management and Budget where I used to work in the 1970s uh, after lobbying by different um, uh, Spanish-speaking organizations uh, or Spanish heritage organizations, um, but it, you're really you're violating the, the civil rights of, of uh, people that speak other languages. They're not getting an equal break. It's very unfair, and it infuriates me when I go into uh, uh, Lowe's or Home Depot or something, and you see all of these. Uh, signs in English and Spanish. And by the way, it reminds you, because most of the Spanish people, speaking people who come here legally, know how to speak English, or they learn it. So what we're looking at that with those two languages side by side is American business kowtowing to illegal aliens. It's infuriating to me. I, I, I hate it. If you're going to do that, and in some places they have, they have eight or 10 or 12 languages placarded around, which is just equally insane. You know, it's crazy because even in, if you consider Spanish, it's got so many sub-languages, uh, Cuban, yeah. Mexican, Guatemalan, yeah. well, Brazil is actually Portuguese. So, you know, they've got several sub-languages. So you can misinterpret yep. within the Lat Latino languages. So how best sure. to communicate... Well, 
if we have a single language, English. Yeah. And yeah, how could you do legal documents, financial documents, if we're not speaking the same language? How do we get an understanding? Right. We can't. Well, of course not. And, and everything you're saying makes sense, which is exactly why the left doesn't like it. Because the left wants to make everything into nonsense because that's their strategy for taking down this country, undermining it and dividing it and uh, creating chaos uh, from every angle that they can think of. And they keep thinking of new angles. All right. Well, Jim, one of the, I'm looking at the clock, and we only got 10 more minutes with you. Uh, sure. Because you are in economics, you had something on we could restart the economy now coming out of this COVID pandemic. What were your ideas? All right. Well, it, it was, uh, I mean, um, first, well, the, the restart now model, I didn't create that. This was uh, created by um, an organization headed by a guy named Benjamin Newsma, a very brilliant analyst who put this model together and it evaluates each state at the county level and looks at each county uh, for its risk of infection by COVID versus the cost of the shutdown. And the cost, not merely in dollar terms, not merely in terms of unemployment, but in terms of suicide risk, in terms of drug addiction, all kinds of other uh, costs that, you know, the people that are thinking about this don't consider. They look at, well, the, the, the risk to COVID is this much, and if we open up, this many more people are going to die or this many more people are going to get sick. You know, they look at that side of the equation. They do not look at the other side of the equation. And here's one very good statistic that, that sort of drives home the point. Every month, 150,000 people according to the CDC, are diagnosed with cancer every month. So we've been shut down for about two months. How many cancer diagnoses that have gone undiagnosed for those two months because you couldn't get these, quote, elective treatments for that time, how many of those cancers have metastasized and have sentenced the people to death? We don't know that but it's not an insignificant number. How many people are going to commit suicide or already have committed suicide because uh, being thrown out of work is one of the biggest causes of suicide? Uh, one report came from Southern California. A doctor said, we've seen more suicides in the last four weeks than we saw all of last year. So those are just two examples. And then you go further into the uh, shutdown for businesses. Now, I'm also a businessman. I created from the ground up a successful business and ran it until I finally let it go in 2005 to pursue a writing career full time. And any businessman knows you cannot operate a business at 50% for a year and survive. 80% of new businesses fail every year. That's operating in full steam, full steam ahead. 
you operate at 50%, I guarantee you many of those businesses will fail. Restaurants, all of the businesses depend on a lot of customers, uh, will fail. If somebody called me from uh, uh, a, a, uh, a hair salon in, in a, another county in Maryland and said, Jim, what, we should, what should we do? Our, our county commissioner told, told us that we weren't going to open up for a while and the most we can do is have one client at a time. Now, think about this. You know what it's like to get your hair done, Aaron, right? You go in there, you sit down, yeah. and you do this, you do that. You're in there about an hour, okay? So this place had something like 5,000 square feet. It was a huge place. It had hundreds of seats, right? He said, how mm-hmm. do, am I going to open up and survive serving one client an hour. You, you can't. You, you know, that, that's a, that's no, a death can't. sentence for that business. And so uh, I told him, I said, look, you know, these, these people are stepping way outside of their authority when they demand these things. No, no uh, legal authority. There's no law behind what they're doing, these executive orders to telling people to shut down. Um, and the police are really very, in most cases, very hesitant to really push it too hard. I told him, just go ahead and open up. And that's what he did. And he's doing whatever he's doing. I'm sure he's keeping uh, social distance and all that other garbage. But he he, 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 he opened up. And, and it's what they have to do. Because if they let this go any longer, there are going to be many more people who die as a result of the shutdown and have died from the COVID. And we can keep the people who are vulnerable, almost entirely elderly people, uh, a very small percentage of the population. We can keep them safe and protected, and the rest of us can go back to work and do, and do pretty much whatever the heck we want. And, uh, and, and that's my view of it. And I'm gonna, I go out there. Somebody wants to shake my hand, I shake his hand. If I had an elderly person living in my house with me, I'd take extra precaution, but I don't. I, I do not expect to get this disease. And it, even if I do, it's, it's more important that we open up because we will literally die as a nation if we stay shut down. Yeah, you said a great many truths in there because we're finding now as the media is finally starting to report, not all media, but the people are coming yeah. forward saying, my state has more people who died from suicide because they're right. shut in. It's hum- yep. We're social creatures. It's human nature to crave the company yep. of others. Yeah. Yeah. Even if you That's don't right. like them, you still want to be around other people. But <laughs> yeah. if, if you're shut in and you have any sort of mental illness, anxiety, yep. or yep. more prone to, you know, yeah. worsen your condition and possibly take your own life. Uh, our nurse had yeah. posted up on uh, Facebook that the hospital had treated 24 people for COVID compared to the regular flu, 338. Now, we're not shutting mm. down for the regular flu, but for COVID, 24 versus yeah. 338. Where is the pandemic? And now right. with people finally getting outside – the police are telling me they're seeing more car accidents because people are just craving to get their stuff done, racing from here to there. 
car accidents are uh, up. So people are being uh, injured. People are committing suicide. Yeah. People are getting the flu and the common cold. Yeah. And yet, yeah. we're shut down for COVID. It's nuts out there. Yeah. It honestly is. Yeah. No, it, it is. It is. And nobody's looking at that side of the equation. That's what really infuriates me about this. It really infuriates me. Jim, you only have a few minutes left. How can you tell the listeners how they can help you with your election coming up on Tuesday? Well, thank you, Mr. Hill. Um, go to my website, jimsimpson4congress.com. Uh, this is a critical election for our nation's history. We need to retake the House of Representatives. It's a national election. We need to take, retake the House. If you're in the position to do so, consider making a donation. There's a donate button right there on the donate page. We will need all the money we can get to defeat the entrenched incumbent Pelosi rubber stamp Democrat Dutch Ruppersberger. Uh, and that would be the best thing they could do. If you live in Maryland, uh, please contact me, uh, Jim at Jim Simpson for Congress.com. I need people to make phone calls. I need people at the polls on on voting day, which is uh, Tuesday. Well, Jim, good luck and God bless. I'm, you know me, I'm, I'm on your side. I'm rooting for you, baby. <laughs> Thanks, Ann. Thanks, Ann. Great to be with you. It's and a pleasure. We'll be uh, talking soon. Yeah, okay. Thanks. Thanks, both of you. Take care. And good All luck right, check it out. in the legislature. Good oh, luck that. in the state legislature. Thank you, Jim. I appreciate that. Yes, sir. Yes, thank you. Yep. Keep it up. All right. Jim Simpson, check him out. Jim Simpson for Congress, running out of Maryland, District Number 2, and endorsed by Governor Bob Ehrlich, uh, who said Jim loves Maryland and can't stand to see what the hard left is doing to it. Here is a Republican ready, willing, and able to bring a refreshingly conservative perspective to the people of the 2nd Congressional District. So if you're down in Maryland in District 2, get out and vote. Do it. Primary is this coming Tuesday. Make sure you get in there. Uh, Mike, All right, we're waiting for our next guest, Mike, to call in. Um, but you said you can only stay for a short time, so I know you got to run soon, right? I do, Annie, and I apologize for that. It's always a pleasure being with you on the show and speaking with your interesting guest, but unfortunately I have other commitments this afternoon uh, that I'm going to have to take care of. Well, thank you for joining us, Mike, even if it was for just an hour. It's always fun to have you on, and hopefully Curtis will be back home soon. Well, hopefully he will. Uh, he will be back, and I hope his mother is doing better, um, but call on me anytime, Annie. It's always a pleasure. Oh, thank you, Mike. Take care and enjoy your weekend. God bless. Amen. You too. Bye. Um, all right. Now, I see some strange phone numbers up in the chat room, and I'm assuming this is our next guest coming in on the phone. All right. This is Southern Surf. I'm your host, is Annie, the Radio Chickadee. To whom am I speaking? Is this John? This is John. Ah, John. See, Hello? I'm waiting for a uh, – yeah, I – I got you. Um, I was waiting to, for an 843 number. I didn't expect to see a different phone number out there. You fooled me. <laughs> Good afternoon. Oh, okay. Good afternoon. 
All right. Uh, so those listening here uh, on Blog Talk Radio, SHR Media, Lone Star Daily News, up on iTunes, Stitcher, Spreaker, YouTube, Facebook, iHeart, all oh, the heck with it. Just go to the name of the show, put a dash in the middle, Southern Hyphen Sense. John Bevington is the author of a book called Rawhead, and he literally does live across the street from me. So I'm plugging a neighbor. Now, John, the book was very, very interesting, and you caught me on just the first chapter. Um, this is a story about your family. Um, what drove you to write this book? Well, growing up, like, like many families, uh, you hear stories from uh, your, your, your grandparents and uh, their siblings about uh, their background and their experiences when they lived. And I had, uh, you know, as a toddler on up, I heard stories about uh, this place called Rawhead, which is uh, uh, a farm, name of a farm. It's also the name of a, an escarpment uh, in West Central Cheshire, England. And they were dairy farmers, uh, tenant farmers, and they made Cheshire cheese and produced milk. And uh, and there were nine brothers, uh, or no, actually 12, 12 kids in that family. I initially heard that nine of them served in the war, but it turns out only five uh, served in the war and they all came back, which was astonishing. So I, I just followed up and did more research and uh, and came up with this book. It is a very interesting book and you, you center on just mostly those five brothers that did go to World War One and their various experiences. My question is, is how did you collect all the material? Did you, was it written papers? How did you put everything together? Because you're very detailed on how you describe their lives and what happened to them. Oh, well, thank you. Well, I first uh, started off by uh, writing biographies of each of the main characters, the, the brothers and, and sisters within this family. Uh, when they were born and when they when they died, how many kids did they have? What uh, what branch of the service did they serve in? That sort of thing. And then I started acquiring information on their uh, service records, which proved to be a bit of a challenge. Um, but uh, and also their medal cards. It's like an index card where any medals that they received during the war they they uh, were inscribed on this card. And I also acquired uh, a number of uh, rare books from London bookshops, some of them quite expensive, which elaborated on uh, the regiments that they served in and uh, their life, you know, life in in the Cheshire, rural Cheshire countryside and making cheese because that's what they did. You know, you centered around pre-World War One, World War One, and pre-World War Two. You didn't go into World War Two. Are you thinking about doing a sequel to this to, to follow the family through World War II? Well, I thought about it, and uh, my I ran it by my sister, but she uh, she said, "Oh, you've you've already covered Rawhead, so write something else." So, I mean, that's you know that's the first time somebody's asked about it. I could certainly do it, but uh, I mean, the book is is really three books: their life before World War One. And the second is world their lives in the war, and then uh, life after the war, up through about 1947. But uh, uh, I could write a, a sequel. Um, that's that's an idea. 
Well, you know, you center around the Bebbington family, which is your family, uh, the the wife and the husband, Mary and Joseph, and the kids. Um, the way that you describe the life, it, it, it gives us an appreciation as Americans how fair and equal our society is compared to what they were experiencing because it was a class system. In England, you're a subject of. You're not an equal status citizen like we have here in the United States. And it's interesting when you show the dynamic in your book between the Bebbington family and the squires. Correct, correct. Yeah, the, uh, the squires and the big landowners like the, uh, the Delamere's uh, and the, the Chomblees and all those elegant names that you've, you hear about, they all lived in these magnificent castles. Some small, some are just grand, like the Chambly Castle in the estate. And they own thousands of acres in the nearby areas, uh, all of which is, is uh, tenant farmed. And as long as they pay rent, um, they can stay there. Uh, you know, many were evicted, but if they were good farmers, good dairymen and women, um, they're allowed to stay. And, uh, but it's definitely, it was definitely a class system. And, uh, well, what, but they go ahead. No, I was going to say what is unusual in England and in Europe and a lot of other countries, the idea of personal property ownership is foreign. And here we thrive on it, which helps feed our capitalistic system so that just about sure. anyone can go from nothing to become extremely wealthy. True, true. But it's not to say that that didn't exist over there. Many of the brothers who who uh, lived in this in my grandfather's family, the Bevington on, on Rawhead, some of them uh, came back from the war and eventually uh, were able to save up enough money to buy their own holdings. That's how they refer to a piece of property or a farm is is a holding. So some of them did actually go into farm ownership, and uh, some of them did well. Some of them couldn't make a go of it and they ended up doing something else. Um, like my grandfather who came to America. So he saw the, the change from going from this system over to America, but uh, you make a good point. Yeah. Um, I like the way you started the book out with Bertie and Sam on the ship that was being sunk and how Bertie ended up with his love for the farm animals, saving a, a herd of horses. And I liked the way Bertie ran into Max the horse later on in the war. But you bring the reality of war and its cost very raw, very raw and very real. Yes, yes. I wanted to jump right into the action uh, immediately up front to to capture the reader. And uh, so I'd actually jump from 1910 up to, uh, I believe it's uh, 1915 or 16, whenever Bertie served. And Bertie, uh, Bertie and, and, um, and another brother were, um, act, and Sam, sorry, they actually uh, were, they were in the Army, part of a branch called the Army Service Corps. So they weren't really soldiers. They were animal handlers. They drove oxen and mules and horses, and they took care of the animals. And so they, they really didn't – many of them, these, these individuals did fight, but uh, they, they uh, were uh, raised to take care of animals. And so they were thrust from this peaceful life 
to taking care of animals in southern England until they got on this boat, the ship. And suddenly they they realized very quickly what war was all about. Their ship was torpedoed. The ship uh, went down with most of the animals and many sailors and soldiers on their way out to Salonika. And that event is based on two two events, uh, two ships that went down. One was called the Royal Edward, which is a ship that uh, went down during the war. And all of the uh, people on the boats, the ship, were rescued uh, after being, uh, you know, from lifeboats. But every animal on that ship went down with it. And that just, just it just breaks my heart because I love animals. And I wanted to ex- that cost of the war uh, because I, I read so little of it in uh, in history. It was, you know, history speaks about the human cost, but the animal cost was was just tremendous. So I explored that. And the second event uh, was a ship that went down near Salonika. It was called the Norseman. And it, it uh, was torpedoed as well, as were dozens of other ships. But the Norsemen actually, they were able to bring it and ground it. And some of the animals were saved. Um, and most of the sailors and, and uh, soldiers were rescued. So that event with Bertie uh, near Salonika was based on those two events. Now, you have dialogue in the book. These are imagined conversations, I'm assuming. How did you end up putting what they were thinking into the book, how could you know, possibly know? Were there letters, conversations? How, how did you manage to do that? Well, there were no letters and no diaries because, you know, soldiers who, who uh, were in the armed forces were, uh, it, it was, they were not allowed to keep diaries, though many of them did, and their, their letters were censored. And at least uh, the ones that got through. So, but there were letters that uh, had details of where they went. Um, but I had very little of that kind of material. Most of that, my uh, knowledge of their whereabouts and their involvement in the war came from war diaries, which are uh, published and discussed in many other books that kind of break it down on a day-to-day basis. But uh, what they said and did specifically on any, any given day, I had to sort of, you know, I fell back on their on the biographies that I wrote of each of these these uh, people to find out what made them tick. Were they aggressive soldiers, stout, heart hardy men, as many of them were, or were they uh, pacifists, didn't want to fight, uh, conscientious objectors, uh, were they just uh, simple farmers? pitchforks it took care of animals uh, you know i had to find out what they picked how they picked and uh, the dialogue i had to just make up what did these people talk about i spent a lot of time talking about you know discussing it uh, so i had to form, you know create these characters because i never knew them except my grandfather and uh, and what my grandfather spoke of them and I had photographs of them during the period. And, you know, their facial features, uh, some of them looked very much like soldiers, ready to fight, wanted to kill. 
Um, but Birdie had a very, very boyish look to his face. He, he, he looks, looked like he couldn't hurt a fly. You're just looking at his photograph, which I don't think is in the book. But um, So I, I drew a lot from my imagination and their appearance and how their relatives describe um, how they live their lives and what the persona was like. Well, you know, you give a very good description of the enthusiasm a lot of the young men had when the thought of going to war, the glory of it, and how later on when they faced the reality, how different it really was and how they changed when they came back. And one of them, you talk about a Boy Scout troop and how enthusiastic they were. We're going off to fight for England and for glory. And then the reality hits. Yes, uh, they all thought, I think, that they were going off to uh, on a great adventure and that they were going to, uh, it was going to be over by Christmas as they were promised by the royals. Uh, They thought it was going to be over and they'd come home and get back to their lives and, and have many stories to tell, but that proved not to be the case. Um, but th- there were a lot of different kinds of soldiers. Uh, some of them were conscientious objectors. They just didn't want to fight. Some of them very much wanted to fight. Uh, uh, soldiering life wasn't for everybody, but you know, being in the army and, and the armed forces of, of Britain, um, life in the army was not not bad for some. I mean, for the first time in their lives, they got three meals, three square meals a day, and a ration of rum and beer, and they had a job, uh, a good job that paid more than their civilian jobs, and they had a roof over their head for the first time. Um, but so it was. Uh, there were a lot of different kinds of individuals uh, going to war. Well, you know, you talk also briefly in the book about the Spanish flu, uh, which was able to spread because of the war at the time. Men in the sure. enclosed encampments just spreading it left and right. <laughs> Excuse me. So, you know, you, you show what was going on there. And far more uh, soldiers died from that flu than from combat. Yeah, and it wasn't just the flu. It was many other diseases. It was malaria, um, typhoid, um, typhus, uh, um, uh, many other uh, diphtheria. It spread through the camps because conditions, particularly in southern England and in the Balkans, you know, being and and there was also trench foot, which my grandfather uh, spoke of uh, quite a bit. And uh, it killed thousands of soldiers uh, who hadn't even seen war yet and the conditions in these camps you know the, the rain and, and uh, the mud and uh, the filthy conditions uh, sailors actually had a better life on board because they were away from a lot of the disease uh, being on ships and uh, so uh, despite what you may hear about uh, you know, atrocities in the British Navy, it, it was, uh, it's, in many cases, it really wasn't true. They were, they were actually better off from a health standpoint um, than uh, soldiers in the field. So 
and you know a lot of soldiers were spared all of these uh, diseases a lot of it depended on where they were at any given time and uh, some of them never saw uh, never so much as got a scratch and while as whereas others didn't last minutes once they got into battle or on a ship so uh, but but it's interesting you know with the pandemic that we're experiencing today and all over the world you know a hundred uh, over a hundred years ago they were battling uh, you know diseases of their own so oh, we will always have something we're going to be battling so it's foolish to think that we'll ever have a single day without any sort of a disease threatening us whether it's cancer or whether it's the flu whether it's this COVID virus you know it's just the nature of of life so you know we have to face that reality but we've faced far worse than what we are today what these men went through what the families had gone through and you, cer- you certainly centered a lot of it on the matriarch Mary and the type of woman that she is and how much she sacrificed and how much she did for the people around her and then she comes here to the United States and stays with your grandfather and she becomes a celebrity yes yes it was and that's a very true event she came over and uh, I believe in 1936 and she stayed for about six months and uh, she was introduced to uh, the, the president of the American Legion post in Montclair, New Jersey, and they invited her to come and do a, a, a talk to uh, veterans at uh, their Legion Hall. And she spoke of what she knew about the war and was questioned about it. And she was asked, uh, by one of the veterans, uh, you think there's going to be a war in Europe? Uh, England seems to be preparing for such a case. And she's she was a very hopeful, loving person, and she she honestly didn't believe there was going to be another war because she had already been through one, a horrible war, and uh, she was fortunate enough to have all her sons come back, but uh, all the Boy Scouts who she knew and who came out and camped on her farm, many of them did not come back. And uh, so it was, uh, it's just, she was an extraordinary woman. Yeah. And she was also devastated that one son who did not go off to war because he was too young ends up losing his life after everyone else returned home safe. Yes. That's the irony of the story. He uh, he was killed in a motorcycle accident. He was uh, he had a little motorcycle and he he fixed up and he was struck by a lorry, which is we call it a truck, but it was uh, they called them lorries over there. And uh, so it's 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 the irony of the whole story that these these five brothers who went to war and they saw these uh, uh, atrocities and and. Uh, killed men some of them killed other men other soldiers and uh, were affected forever uh they all managed to come back and yet they lose their their youngest in a, in a traffic accident so it's it's just one of the ironies of this story it is it is a very interesting and the book moves very fast the read is very fast very easy um to enjoy most people probably can read this in one or two sittings uh, which is why I loved it. When I see something that's very well written and 
it really captures your attention. It's fun to read. And that's why I have fun interviewing authors such as yourself. Well, I appreciate you saying that. I, uh, I could easily have made it a much longer book, uh, much thicker, and, and I could have elaborated on many different, many of the storylines, but um, the publisher suggested I just try to keep it uh, at, a, at, a, at its current length and to uh, clarify some things. And uh, so that's why it's at the length that it was. And uh, but I, I spent 14 years writing this uh, off and on, and I tried to. Uh, so I did a lot of editing uh, and, and tried to make it read well and put myself in the uh, the place of uh, readers. And uh, so that's why I wanted to. I did some flash forwards, flashbacks, and uh, I wanted to bring uh, Bridge. You know the uh, the British experience with the American experience uh, through my grandfather because he he, uh, he became an American citizen in uh, 23 or 24 I think so so I spent a long t- a lot of time thinking about how I was going to write this and present it because it very easily could have been a history book and uh, I, I didn't think anybody would read it if I just wrote it as a, a bunch of facts so I had to I had to really think about what's the story here I have, there has to be a story. So after you look at out, after I wrote outlines and, and uh, looked at all the facts and, and what happened, I, I, I formulated, you know, it jumped out at me. There is, Hey, there is a story here. You know, it is. And you hit so many different aspects of life during world war one, where even the son-in-law who married, I believe it was Molly. He married, um, was a conscientious objector. He didn't want to fight, but he felt somehow or other he had to serve, and he became an ambulance chaser. And what these men went through just to help the wounded is absolutely amazing. Yeah, that's that's a story in and of itself. I mean, Ernest Hemingway drove an ambulance uh, during World War One, as did uh, many folks. Um, but... Uh, Clarence Harper um, was an ambulance driver, and he braved many, uh, and he he uh, braved many, many, many battles. Um, he was actually my mother's grand, my mother's father. I don't explain that in the book, but that is just a fact. And he uh, he was gassed, uh, so that's one of the things that they faced, not just the bullets and the bombs and. But the gas, you know, they're, uh, this is chemical warfare. Uh, there are three different gases used during the war, phosgene, chlorine, and uh, mustard gas. And he was gassed. And he really actually died in the war, uh, but 10 years later. He, uh, he had so much respiratory damage that uh, he, he died in the war and he didn't know it. But they were very brave individuals, even though they didn't fight in the trenches, but they drove uh, supply lorries and trucks and, uh, and drove ambulances and rescued these, uh, these men from the battlefield. Uh, incidentally, there's a term I use in the book called a basket case. And I thought, well, that term just explains someone who's impaired or confused or something like that, but that's not where that term comes from. Uh, 
the term basket case was uh, it was came from World War One, and it describes soldiers who had all four limbs of their blown off their body, their their trunks, their body trunks were actually brought in from the battlefield in baskets, and they refer to them as basket cases, and that's where that term comes from. So, yeah, it's a good. Well, there's a lot of good information in there. Um, and one of the things I thought was really touching, since this is the week of Memorial Day, where we do remember our fallen, um, your mom, your, I guess your great-grandmother, um, Mary, made it a habit of going to the hospitals and to the um, veterans' homes to spend time with the men. Yes, she uh, she went to... Uh... Uh, they, they wrote a uh, uh, when when she did her speech at the American Legion Hall in 1936. I think it was December of 1936. Uh, she she was asked by a veteran in the audience, uh, "What do you plan to do here while you're in in, uh, in New Jersey?" And she said, "Well, I'm going to go up and see the the, the veterans at Lyons." And Lyons was a uh, well, it is it is a big medical center uh, in New Jersey, and um, and she went up there and saw them as she did uh, uh, many other hospitals in Britain and America, and uh, that was just the kind of person she was. I, I think Mary Mary Bevington, uh, my great grandmother, she is actually the uh, the focus of of my book everything really kind of revolved around here. I mean, she held this little world together and uh, worked the farm while everyone else was gone. All the men, not just the, her sons, but uh, everyone else. So that was just the kind of person she was. She was just a very loving, happy, uh, giving type of person. And, uh, you know, after the more I learned about her and seen you know, seeing her photographs, um, I, I just got that sense about her uh, from all this material. It's also interesting to see the dynamic that went between the Bebbington family and the squire, Robert Bryden. It was very interesting and in how he seemed to feel that they were more like friends than as tenants. Yes. I, that's the way I, I explained it. It wasn't always the case. I think uh, more often than not, they, they kept their distance from each other because they were from different, two completely different social classes. And, uh, and it wasn't the, uh, the squires who, you know, marched out to these, you know, the dozens of farms that he owned. Uh, he had managers who did all that. But I wanted to explore uh, this particular uh, type of of, of uh, landowner, uh, Robert Bryden, um, because there were things that happened in his life that uh, indicated that he was a very very brave man. And he, even though he had millions of pounds of money and a castle to live in, and people running farms for him. He actually uh, uh, 
went into battle and fully expected to die in many cases. You know, he didn't try to try to get out of the war and, and things. So, so I gave uh, Robert Bryden from what I knew of him um, the, uh, and I changed his name by the way, to protect the, the existing family that still exists over there um, and owns Rawhead. But so Robert Bryden um, did die in a, in a horse accident that's all factual material, and he served very honorably in uh, the Cheshire Yeomanry, and he led a very uh, gallant life. And uh, so he, uh, you know, he. So, so getting back to your question, he was. I think I think for the most part, you know, the the, the owners themselves uh, who lived in these castles, the old English families. They largely, for the most part, uh, kind of kept their distance, you know, and they just lived in their social circles. And uh, but uh, one of the things I, I explored was, you know, the, this friendship between Bertie, who loved horses, and Robert Bryden, who also loved horses. And uh, well, John, so it's that bond. Well, John, people can find your book up on Amazon. Um, there's a link to it on the show page so when people listen to the archives later on and they can get it. Um, so telling the listeners to uh, check out Rawhead by John Bebbington. John, I want to thank you for joining us and I'll see you <laughs> waving to you from the window. <laughs> okay. It's been a great pleasure. All right. John Bebbington, check it out. Rawhead, which is up on Amazon. There's also a link on the show page. You can click on the name of the book and go straight to Amazon. <laughs> Now, we have another guest coming in on the line, a friend of uh, Curtis, our co-host, who's not with us today, unfortunately. I want to welcome aboard former game warden Bob H. Lee. Bob, good afternoon. How are you today? Well, good afternoon to you, Annie, and thank you so much for having me on your show. And also to Curtis, I know he's, he's not there, but I regard him as a friend. We actually live uh, in Putnam County up in Northeast Florida, not far from each other. So um, I'm much appreciated and um, I've been looking forward to being on your show. Uh, Well, you've got two books out. One is called Backcountry Lawmen and the other one is Bad Guys, Bullets and Boat Chases. Now I got to tell you, I, I had a stack of like nine books I've had to read. So I've kind of like sped read through your two books. I didn't complete them all 100%, so bear with me. But I've got like – I'm going to – hang on a second. I've got to change the picture here on, on the video. Um, sure. I'm going to hold up to, with the camera all my little notes on the book so people can see that, yeah, I was reading furiously. Um, but there's so much to read. And people think game would. Oh, yeah, all you're going to do there is you're going to go out in the water and you're going to hassle me to find out whether or not i got a fishing license and blah, 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 blah. But reading your book, there's a lot more to being a game warden than just checking someone's license. Correct. And, and so, and, and that's one of the reasons, one of my motivations uh, for writing both of these books. And just to clarify, if you, if you allow me, I'll to kind of distinguish between the two. The first book is Backcountry Lawman, True Stories, True Stories uh, of a Florida Game Warden. And that's basically a compilation of my first-person experiences the officers I worked with. Uh, later on, I was a patrol supervisor or lieutenant in my career. And uh, it, it's, uh, it covers a wide variety of themes and topics. 
but there's no fishing license checks in the book, or either book for that matter. And after I completed that one, I began work on the second book, which is more of a journalistic effort. And I spent three years uh, interviewing working and retired officers, one end of Florida to the other. And cher- admittedly, I cherry-picked my stories. And they're big. a lot of them are big stories, very dramatic. And so I just wanted to show um, this other side of law enforcement. Everybody, Annie, you included, of course, because you have a background in law enforcement, Every, everybody pretty well understands what a New York City cop does or a big city cop or a sheriff's deputy, but few people really have an understanding of what it's like to go out there on the woods or the water by yourself on patrol with absolutely no backup. And whatever you get into, you got to get out of by yourself. There is nobody there to help you. So. It's, some of them are, are, the stories are very, very frightening. <laughs> Excuse me. And you talk about a lot of the areas that you patrol are dead areas for the radio. So the radio is worth nothing more than hitting someone over the head with it. And believe me, I know the right. radios because I put a dent in someone's apartment door <laughs> knocking with the butt of the radio. <laughs> it got their attention. Right. <laughs> well, uh, uh, back then I, I began, and also let me add that I began my career in 1977. And after 30 years, I, I finished or retired in 2007. But in 77, we were issued what we call handheld radios. I think up in New York they might be called rovers or something like that. But these handheld radios were absolutely worthless. Um, couldn't couldn't get hold of dispatcher. My dispatch um, was 90 miles from me, and so the only radios that worked most of the time were uh, was the radio in the car or the patrol boat. But as you said, we did have these dead zones, and particularly. In, in Chapter Three of my first book, Backcountry Lawman, I had this story. I I I, uh, I entitled it uh, "Midnight Ride on a Six Gallon Gas Can," and essentially my patrol boat sinks at midnight, and uh, in the Okawaha River. Now, for for your readers who have not, or excuse me, for your listeners who have not been in the Okawaha River, let me just sum it up and make the perfect backdrop for a Tarzan movie. It flows along the northern border of the Ocala National Forest. Nobody lives there. It, it's a vast swamp. And so when my boat sinks, there I am. Dispatch generally knows I'm out somewhere within a 10-mile area of, of where I'm at, but they don't really know where I'm at or what's happened. And so I'm left to stride this six-gallon gas can floating out literally through a gauntlet of alligators. And, and, and many of these alligators in the creek at that time were well over 13 feet, way up over 800 pounds. Because in 77, the alligators had not been hunted for almost 20 years legally. Now, of course, you always have a little bit of poaching. And, it, and, this, and the legal season wasn't open until the mid-80s. So this place, if you turn your light on at night, any straightaway, you'd see three or four dozen pairs of eyes uh, easily. So it was, um, you know, that's a sketchy moment to do that. And, of course, once you finally, I finally, I was fortunate enough to drift down to a um, – a primitive landing where there were some fishermen camped and, and got them to uh, uh, take me up to a, a payphone about 10 miles away in the little town of Salt Springs, which is kind of like a, an oasis in the northern part of the Ocala National Forest. So those sorts of things happen, and, um, hey, it's on you. You're there for the ride. And so, so that's what I like to write about. I like, a, I like to write about the difficulties that, that our officer is suddenly thrust into um, particularly if they're alone. 
Now, a lot, I have a lot of stories, too, where there's, you know, a couple of officers together. But even if those two officers are together, they are still out there on their own, and they've got to figure it out. So those, that's why I wanted to show. I wanted to show the uniqueness of this job. And let me also add one more thing um, for, your, for your listeners to kind of add a little more perspective. There are roughly one million city, state, uh, federal law enforcement officers in the United States and conventional law enforcement, let's call it that. And there's only about 6,000 certified law enforcement officers in the conservation ranks. That's it for all the states in the United States. So very often these, these officers are left patrolling millions and millions of acres of, of uh, federal, state, and private lands all by themselves or waterways um, that are very remote. And so Anyway, those experiences, that's, that's kind of what I'm keen on uh, when, you know, for my books. Yeah, it's very, very interesting. Now, you also mentioned uh, in one of the books the history of the Florida Conservation because it was two different agencies that got consolidated into one. That's correct. Yes. Yeah, so when, when I began in, in 1977, I was what I, I hired on to what was then called the Florida Game and Freshwater Fish Commission. And so they were responsible for all, uh, uh, all wildlife inland, all freshwater. And then our sister agency, if you will, although we were in no way connected, was the Florida Marine Patrol. And they were uh, responsible for um, all marine wildlife, manatees, saltwater, fin fish, all the commercial fishing that went with that. And so, uh, and we stayed like that separate until uh, July 1st, 1996, when we merged. And then we became this giant law enforcement agency, which is now known as the Florida Fish and Wildlife Conservation Commission. But what makes it a little bit different, we, the Florida, the old Florida Game of Fish was always a little different than the Florida Marine Patrol in that we, had a, we fell under a constitution. We, we were kind of autonomous. We made our own laws for fish and wildlife, whereas the Florida Marine Patrol had to go to the legislature to get any laws approved. And that proved to be very problematic because there was a lot of special interest groups, particularly the commercial fishing lobby, that would lobby the legislatures against certain rules for the protection of, uh, of saltwater fin fish. And I'm particularly talking about the gillnets. I don't want to get too complex on it. But, but anyway, when the merger took place, the Florida Marine Patrol came underneath our constitutional umbrella so that this new, this giant law enforcement agency could now pass laws for the protection of saltwater fin fish that did not have to go before the legislature, which was a really good thing. And most of these laws are based on science. Okay, so... Um, it, that that was that was that was good for the environment. It really was. So. Now, the area that you patrolled, give us an idea of what size that was. Because did you patrol it all by yourself, or was there someone that you switched with? How did that work? So it's not like a no. It you usually have a uh, you all would call it a zone in a you know a police department, whereas most. Uh, most officers in Florida are assigned a county. Uh, now, when I began my career in 77, I was, I was a little different. I was, I was a member of what we called a water patrol crew or a river patrol crew. And this particular crew of officers wasn't so much that we worked by county, 
we worked by the whole – we had a, a section of the St. John's River to patrol. Now, the St. John's River is huge. It's 310 miles in length, and toward the lower end where it empties into the Atlantic at the seaport uh, city of Jacksonville, it can get up to two miles wide. So it's, it's a big river. And uh, the section that uh, I and my other five counterparts had were covered maybe 120 miles of the river. But we, and there was a little overlap, Annie, but basically we had our own section. And when we weren't there, there was nobody patrolling it. And so generally we patrol best eight out of 24. And we didn't have a, a schedule or anything like that. You worked when you knew you needed to work. Um, because a lot of our, uh, of what we do, uh, what we enforce, it's seasonal. Um, let's just, oh, I don't know. Let, let's just start with March. March is, it's turkey season. And then, and then as it warms up, we've got boating season. And then in uh, early, or excuse me, late summer, you'd have archery season. And then muzzleloader season. And in between, you've got early duck. And then you've got duck season. You've got dove season. You've got general gun season. And so all of these different seasons um, need to be worked at different times. And in between that, you've got certain times where poachers uh, are, are going to target certain species. And, for instance, during general gun season, it's a give me that the weekend before it opens, you would want to be working all night looking for fire hunters. Now, that, that's, a, that's a colloquial term meant to uh, describe somebody who's going out with a gun and a light and attempt to take a deer unlawfully at night. Because they'd always, these people, these are cheaters, and they would always try to get out, say, for instance, the week before, uh, to kill a good buck before the season opened. So, so that's just an example of what I mean. You, you need to be able to be flexible and switch up. You work turkey hunters, now you're getting up at, oh, 4 o'clock in the morning. And so, you, so there's, you know, a wide variety of times, and so, you know, you've got to be very flexible in how you do it. And obviously you need to be dedicated because that kind of time schedule could be taken advantage of. Let's put it that way. So, so basically, basically, you chose your own hours, and you chose where did, you were going to patrol. Then. Correct. We did then. Um, they've gotten away with that now. A lot of the officers are on schedule. There's very few lieutenants that allow their officers to kind of work, you know, eight out of twenty-four. And if they do, it's kind of the, the wink of an eye because there's still a, a schedule there, like best twelve out of twenty-four or something, and. Um, so we've gone, we, of course, we have more officers now, too, and we have about 800 uh, certified LEOs, more than any uh, LEO, meaning uh, law enforcement officer, and that's more than any other state conservation agency. And so uh, a lot of the guys are on schedules, particularly if they're assigned to water patrol in South Florida. Um, in South Florida, Gosh, it's, there's not just the summertime is a busy season for boating. It's all the time because it's always warm in South Florida. And, and, and any weekend, any holiday can be just horrifically busy. And so there the scheduling process tends to work a lot better, you know, to have somebody there almost all the time uh, to be on duty. Um, address complaints, boating accidents, uh, complaints of boating under the influence, reckless operation, boat theft, uh, those, those types of things. Now, um, you described in your, the book, um, Backcountry Lawman, 
about monkey fishing. I never heard that term before. It's the first time I ever heard of something like that. And so, first, let me get it out there. They're not fishing for monkeys. Okay, so uh, what it is, it's electric (laughs) fishing. And, uh, and, and, I'll, and I'll explain how the term came about. And mainly, it's, it was done uh, primarily by outlaw commercial fishermen. And so what they did originally, back, this began back in the late 50s. And so what they would do, they, were, they would remove that um, the hand crank uh, magneto from an old uh, antique telephone. Okay? And one guy would sit in the boat. And he'd spin that handle just as hard as he could, and there'd be two wires from it going into the water. And, of course, there'd be an electric current between the two tips of the wires. That would shock the fish. The fish uh, obviously wants to escape the sting of that charge, and so they swim up to the surface and skitter around, and then another man would dip them up. Well, finally, they figured out a way to make it more efficient, and they mounted that device on a board so that it was driven by a small electric motor, which allowed both fishermen um, to use big long handle dip nets to scoop the fish up. And a two man crew in four hours, if they know what they're doing, can catch mm, 600 pounds of fish. And then they take it into a fish house and then, and then they sell it. But the original device that was hand cranked, a lot of people thought it kind of resembled the, uh, the old organ grinder, 18th, 19th century organ grinder on the street corner. He had his monkey with the tin cup and he'd be begging for pennies. And so, therefore, that's kind of where that uh, name derived from. And back in the day, it was as popular as moonshining was in North Georgia and Tennessee. I swear it was. Um, you know, but just before I came, I know that uh, I've heard tales from the other officers. Everybody would go out, the barbers, the lawyers. It, it was just a big time. They'd go out there and, and just uh, everybody had a light on at night. And the game would go out there and chase them and bust them up like a cubby of quail. The next day, they'd all get together at the barbershop, and they'd talk about the chase and so on and so forth. Because this device is heavy, and they throw it overboard. And without the game warden getting hold of it physically to bring into court, there's no judge back then who was going to prosecute it. You know, Even if you brought it into court, they didn't really want to prosecute it. So, um, so that's kind of a little bit about the history of monkey fishing. But by the time I got here, they were uh, driving extremely fast boats. I had a I had a fast boat, and so the boat chases we the boat chases that high speed boat chases that I was involved with could get pretty dicey, particularly if you're going down a narrow creek at night at three or four o'clock in the morning, like the Okawaha River, which is what I kind of described earlier, because. There's a lot of snags, deadhead logs, just um, every obstacle you can imagine and nature would throw at you. So you've got to be pretty nimble when you're operating that boat uh, down a corridor like that. It's it's a real obstacle course. <clears throat> well, you, you had a favorite nemesis, and you write about him in several places in the book, Roger Gunner. Correct. Tell us about this Roger guy. Gunner, yes. My, probably my favorite subject. Um, <clears throat> he... <laughs> The, the best, if I were to sum him up, let me say this. If I were to sum him up in a soundbite, I would ask your listeners to imagine a cross between a modern Daniel Boone, a modern-day Daniel Boone, and a fictional Crocodile Dundee. That's Roger Gunner in a nutshell, except there's nothing fictional about him. He was the worst poacher in Putnam County and perhaps all of northeast Florida. Um, he was a deer poacher, an outlaw commercial fisherman. He was a deep-sea diver a former 82nd Airborne paratrooper, a deadhead logger. Uh, His favorite hobby was wrestling alligators underwater. And 
between 2013 and 2016, he was a reality-based TV star. He was on the Axemen series. And so, I mean, you, gosh, you can't make this stuff up. But the guy, um, gosh, he just he just really kept us going and, and really hardly got caught at all. And so <clears throat> toward the end of my career, which was going to be, I was going to retire at the end of September in 07, I'd already begun work on the book. And I knew I wanted to write about him. But I also knew from a journalistic perspective, I had to interview him. I had to interview him. And so actually five years before I would retire, I approached him one day at the boat ramp. And, um, and he's, he dresses the same way. It's camouflage, V-neck uh, of the shirt cut out, white rubber boots if he's on the water, green rubber boots if he's on the hill or land. And so I, he, he's, he's maybe 6'1", six, 6'2", six, big, tough, rough-looking guy, and he he speaks with this um, raspy drawl because he's near deaf. He, he's real loud, you know. And so I asked him. I explained to him what I wanted to do, and he said, ain't no way cat. Now, he calls everybody cat. That way he doesn't have to remember their name. It's very simple, okay. And he says, and then he says, I got too many secrets. And then he stuck his nose up in the air and loaded his boat. I said, well, fine. If nothing else, I am persistent. Six months later, I see him at the bait shop. No, ain't going to talk to you. This went on for years. And so finally my wife came home one day. She was a school teacher. Well, by that time she was working in uh, school board administration. And right down the hall from her worked uh, Roger Gunner's wife, Sharon Gunner. And um, she was an administrative assistant. And so she says, you know, you need to come up and talk to Sharon. And so I did. And she says, here's how it is, Bob. He says, Roger's grandkids want you to write about him. His kids want you to write about him. I want you to write about him. As it turns out, the only person that didn't want me to write about Roger was Roger. So the short of it is he, he finally relented about a month before I retired, about 30 days before. And in a telephone conversation with him, he said, okay. He said, I will talk to you, but only after you've officially retired. I said, outstanding. And so then about a month after I retired, I went over to his house, and that led to four days of recorded interviews. I transcribe those interviews. I take the nuggets of them, and I weave them into the stories I tell, tell about us uh, mainly trying to catch Roger. And some of them are, are pretty wild. And the other thing I found out from him, uh, other than I always knew he was just a superb woodsman, because this is how he supported his family. He killed game. He, he was raised rough. And he killed uh, mainly squirrels and ducks, but later on as he got older, deer. But that's how he fed the, fed the family. He was the hunter in the family. But I also found out through the interviews and the course of the interviews that he is a real thrill seeker. I mean, he really got off on these boat chases. He loved it. And he always, he always worked by himself when he was a poacher. And uh, not many guys do that. A lot of them, Annie, they need a little company. But when you find somebody that's going out there in the woods or water by themselves, they're in a little separate league. And uh, Roger almost always did that. Of course, the, one of the reasons he explained to me also in the course of these interviews was that he wanted to keep all the money for himself. He didn't want to split it with anybody. But, uh, but he was a thrill seeker, and uh, that came out when I talked to him about the 82nd Airborne. And, and even after he got out of the 82nd Airborne, he competitively parachute jumped for years. And so, and there's some great stories about him parachute jumping too. Particularly, some sometimes a chute didn't open, and he had to go to the 
to the secondary shooter, the reserve shoot, I guess. So he's 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 very interesting. He's authentic, and uh, and we actually ended up doing uh, some talks together after the book came out. And I would I would interview him just like a television broadcaster, or or you would interview somebody on the radio, any. And it uh, it worked out great. It was uh, the crowds uh, usually enjoyed him. Well, how did you eventually get catch him? We didn't. I, I never really uh, – well, I tell you what. Yes, we did. There's the last story in, in Backcountry Lawman called Burn Marks. I go in there. We, we caught him, not on a major violation, but we did catch him. And uh, on this particular day, it was – we're going into turkey season now, and as, as you recall I mentioned earlier, you have to get up very early. Uh, to work turkey hunters. And so one of my officers named Tommy Shear um, had seen some sign of an ATV going into uh, um, uh, an illegal area of a wildlife management area. In other words, excuse me, a prohibited area where you couldn't hunt. It was off limits. And he told me, he said, Bob, he said, uh, I think that's Roger Gunner on that ATV. He saw, he saw the sign where he went around a cable gate came up through the palmettos and kept on going. I said, okay. He says, I want to go catch him. You want to come? I said, well, sure. And we did. We got up. Oh, we probably got up at 3 in the morning. And we walked. We hit our vehicle a long way away. And we made sure we didn't leave any tire sign. Because he, Roger would typically, when he went to park his vehicle, wherever it was going to be, or hide it, he would check the entrances, the, any, any um, two trails, um, maintenance roads for management areas, anything. He checked for tire signs always before he would go and do his thing. So we were very careful, and we probably walked a mile or two to get to this site. Anyway, get set up before daylight. Uh, right about daylight, we hear an ATV coming, and where we set up was he had to go down into a ditch or, to go around this cable gate, and basically it's two big steel posts with, a, with an iron or steel cable uh, across it. And so we knew he had to slow down. And when he did, when he went down that ditch, I can't, I jumped out in front of him and Thomas Shear was the officer. He jumped out in back and we caught him up. And uh, he had a, he had slung across his chest with a, in a homemade cloth holster camouflage was a 223 center fire Thompson pistol. And so what he would have done if he had seen us coming, he would have hooked a thumb under the one strap of that camouflage holster and he would have just flipped it off into the palmettos, and we would have never known it, never have seen it. And so, but anyway, we ended up capturing him up, and um, and the one thing he told us, he says, don't yell at me. He said, I'll do whatever you want. Don't yell at me. And I think that goes back <laughs> to the way he was raised, because his, his dad was a, he was not a good man. He was a mean man, and um Anyway, so Roger took a beating uh, on what not just him, but his siblings did too. So he was raised rough, um, but he complied, and we wrote him a citation, notice to appear in court, and you know he turned around, and went on his way. And so there's an example of what you got to go through to catch him. Uh, but he he also had a lot of informants, and he also, uh, like he told me during the interviews, he says I also put out disinformation for you. In other words, he knew that word disinformation. He said, I'd, I'd have somebody go and tell you where I was going to be, but I'd be 30 miles north of there. And he'd do that all the time, you know. 
So, uh, and then, then it, even if he didn't have an informant, if he thought he spent 37 years working at the paper mill in George Pacific, which is also kind of odd because he held a real job. And this job, working at the paper mill, the last five years he was a supervisor, Annie, he was making big money. He was well paid. Uh, but to do what he was doing but still maintain a job and show up to work every day, that's, that's really rare for a poacher. But uh, in, in any case, I don't know, I've kind of gotten off topic now, but, uh, but sometimes <laughs> at the mill he, he would know of somebody who was what he called a pimp. Uh, he suspected that they were relaying information to us, and so he would just drop some stuff to them intentionally, and again, he'd be 30 miles north. And, and he's right. We, we, uh, we you know, he, gosh, he ran us in circles, you know. And, uh, but we did have one night that I write about where we had this hell-bent for leather boat chase with him uh, that, that got pretty sketchy. So, uh, but, but anyway, so there's a little bit about Roger Gunner. Well, you had mentioned about the midnight ride on the gas can, and you had Correct. me squirming in the seat as I was reading that chapter. And uh, well, here in South Carolina, we got, we got gators here too. And if you live anywhere okay. near a golf course, you can expect to find a gator around somewhere around. And my husband you just had a home fatality up there, didn't so. you? You, you uh, just yeah, had a so. uh, gator fatality, I think. Yeah. Yeah. And, and there's going, also in Go today's, uh, I think in today or tomorrow's newspaper, there's going to be an article about um, they pulled a gator out of one of the ponds of one of the golf courses. I think it was something like 11 feet. And after they got it all taped and tied up, tourists were riding on the back of it. So that kind of big ruckus. There you go. That was one of the dumbest things, dumbest thing you can do. You don't well, mess around you, with the game. Now, you respect it. There's nothing like nothing like a tourist, Andy. But uh, they just, you know, they they, <laughs> they typically shy. They typically shy from humans. However, on occasion, um, there'll be an attack. You know, for whatever reason, and. Um, and it cannot go well, you know. It can because they're nope. once they get their prey down into the water, you're you're uh, you're in their terrain now. They rule. Yeah, you know? and it's um, you, and you don't very walk, hard to get. Don't walk your don't walk your dog on the golf course or by the pond because that's nice chasing well, little meat for well, the gator. The nice little morsel. Well, I even had I listen. I had one attack up here in a small pond, just like you're talking about. The lady's walking along with the weed eater. Gator jumps out and attacks her. They hate weed eaters, and they don't like lawnmowers much either. And so, but weed eaters makes them crazy for some reason. But yeah, so I, I, she she didn't get hurt bad. Just kind of nipped her a little bit, you know. But um, but so there's there's an, another example of unpredictability. But but the thing about the alligators, let's let's take talk about them for just a moment more. <clears throat> One of the main reasons, probably 90, 95% of the time we have these attacks uh, is because they've been fed by a human, okay? And once they're fed, they become acclimated to humans, and they anticipate that treat. And if they don't get that treat, problems can happen. And I write about it, the gator attack in my second book, which was really, really bad, where a a three-and-a-half-year-old boy was eaten by an alligator, um, down in Volusia County, on, which is near the east, it's not. It's maybe an hour from uh, Kennedy Spaceport, but yeah, that's that's a that was quite a tale there. Um, in in that one, the hero of the book, one of our officers takes part in this story, but the real hero 
is a guy named uh, <clears throat> Curtis Lucas, who's a professional gator hunter. And he's been a state nuisance trapper with us for probably 25 years. And, uh, and I interviewed him for this story. And by the time I interviewed him, he had killed over 5,000 alligators. He's as good as you're going to get. And he spent, once this boy was, was attacked, he spent 14 hours hunting this alligator in a lake that was probably almost two miles across. And uh, it's, it's, you know, I'm not going to go into everything with it, but after 14 hours, the sun finally rose. He found that gator, and he killed it. And uh, the boy was mm. still in his jaws 14 hours later. And it was quite a feat. I mean, when you talk about hunting uh, and the manner you hunt, and I go into the hunt and some of the technique some of the techniques he uses. Uh, so anybody who is a hunter out there or interested in gator hunting, um, they, they might, it's a sad story admittedly, but I wanted to, it's a saddest story I've ever written, but I wanted to, I wanted to show that side of what we do. It's not all out there just grins and checking fishing license. And just, just like you all, you work a lot of bad things as a cop. Well, this is, this is part of it, you know? And of course, I'm also trying to, send that educational message using this story as an illustration of what can happen if you feed the alligators because it is believed that this alligator was fed um so there's a little something about alligators yeah if i if i i think i remember that item in the news it caught my eye because the mother was on the shoreline and the kid went in to swim Correct. and she wasn't too far from she, she was not too far from watched, but she, there was nothing she could have done well, I interviewed the mother. Now, admittedly, that interview didn't last too long because she became emotional. And, you know, I had I had some qualms about talking to her, but I decided, well, there were certain questions I, I wanted. I, I thought the newspaper articles were, were confusing about the incident, and I wanted to get some clarity, just a little bit of clarity of what was happening before the event because there were two other children down there with her at this little county park. Um, Lake Ashby Park is the name of it, 64 acres. And, um, and anyway, so I got that clarity. But she was actually – she had just called Adam. The boy's name was Adam, and he was in about calf-deep water and just called to him to step in to the shoreline when the gator struck. And there was just big mm. shower of spray, and by the time the water droplets had collapsed, he was gone. And so there, that and that begins the – you know, shortly after that, the search begins uh, for the gator and for the boys because um, they needed to recover him, obviously. So, yeah, so those yeah. things can be um, – they, they don't happen often, but when they do, it, it can be really bad, you know. And it's just unfortunate because people are down there. They're, it's just like the one at Disney World. I'm sure everybody's heard about that one. Oh, gosh, you know, everybody's down there having a good time, and then um, – you know, the boys attacked by this, actually not a very big alligator. I think it, I think they said it's seven foot long. Um, and But he's, you know, he becomes a fatality. So some of the things we get involved with. Um, and and you just to let your listeners know also, if, if, say, for instance, this attack, there was an attack that occurred at the southern end of Lake George and Juniper Run. Now, Lake George is a huge, what it is, it's a wide spot in the St. John's River. It's huge. 13 miles long, 6 miles wide, 46,000 acres. On the southern end of it is a, is a clear spring uh, fed run called Juniper, and it flows out of the Acala National Forest. Anyway, 
there's a rental cottage up there that's rented by the National Forest Service. People can go and get it. It's in a remote area, and there's a little spring near it that flows into Juniper. The short of it is a woman was out there swimming, and uh, I think about an eight-foot alligator attacked her and killed her. We had our officers set up there in the banks and tree stands with high-powered rifles, and they killed every gator that swam by. It was about that size. They shot and killed it. And that's that's what we try to do to try to eliminate the problem. You know, and sometimes if if there's a body part involved that's missing, they can necropsy can be done. And you can open, open up the stomach and you can verify for sure that that's the gator. But sometimes if there isn't, then you just go in and you kill them all that size. A lot of people don't like to hear that, but I mean, you've got to you've got to try to eliminate the problem. And there won't be a lot of them that size, but I mean, you know, you know what I'm saying? You've got that's something you got to do. Yeah, you know, because people think, you know, game warden, oh, it's a nice, safe job. But game wardens have been killed in the line of duty. Yes, and unfortunately in Florida, the best information I've, I've gotten, I've researched, and I may be wrong, is that we've had more fatalities than any other state. That's not something to brag about. I'm just po- pointing that out as a matter of fact. Since uh, since. We know we talked earlier about the establishment of the, the old Florida Game and Freshwater Fish Commission. We became a constitutional authority around 1942, and since then, uh, we there have been 18 fatalities, and that's going on up into uh, when we became this new super agency on July 1st, 1996. 18 fatalities in the course of that time, and then but the first fatality occurred in. Uh, 1905. His name was Guy Bradley, and he uh, he worked for the National Audubon Society. He was hired by them, and he was also a part-time deputy with the Monroe County Sheriff's Department out of the Keys down in that area. And what was going on was he, his assignment was to go after the plume hunters. At this time in 1905, uh, a, a lot of the wading birds have, had been decimated. They were near extinction because of the plume hunters. They killed millions and millions and millions of birds for these for these fancy feathers in the ladies' hats. And so uh, they, a lot of the birds and the ones remaining were, were driven down to the very south end of Florida where it's very remote in the Everglades. And so um, one day he, he caught him a plume hunter. Unfortunately for Guy Bradley, that plume hunter had been a Confederate captain in the Civil War and shot and killed him. Uh, with a 38 revolver on the water, and um, and so that was the first game warden killed in the state of Florida. And actually, there's a, there's a, there's a very good book on it too, uh, published by my publisher, the University Press of Florida. And then about three years later, there's another game warden killed in South Florida. Didn't even find his remains. They just found a hat with some hatchet marks in it and some blood, where somebody hit him over the head of the hatchet and thrown him over, and they believe the sharks got him. So. Um, so that that kind of began. So that that's an, of course back then there's no radios. I mean you you are literally the lone ranger, and um, you know whatever happens, like I said, gosh, it's you know it's up to you to get out of. Yeah. Now you talked about a, a story that I had a laugh uh, about this one guy Bert that was running in these steel traps, and someone knocked on your front door, told you about it, drew you a map, but you got to explain how the chase ended. What happened and how it ended? Yeah. Because yeah. I, I thought it was hysterical. Right. I mean, because you're breaking the law, does it make you smart? 
Well, exactly. Of course, when you're under pressure, too, as you know, when somebody's running, <laughs> they kind of get tunnel vision, right? So so what happened uh-huh. was, uh, this, this is early in my career. Oh, it's 9 or 10 o'clock at night. I get a knock on my door, and, of course, I'm going up with a kind of a, a wary eye. Um, and uh, But it's a guy I recognize, and he's got black rubber boots on. He's got camouflage. And the short of it is he'd been out coon hunting, which is legal. And he said, he explained to me, listen, I found some steel traps. Now, steel traps um, are what we call leg hold traps, and they're used to catch fur bearers with. Fur bear could be a, oh gosh, you know, a raccoon, an otter, a possum, uh, and a uh, bobcat, and so forth. Under certain times of the year, it's legal. Now, it's not legal to use, it's never, it's never legal in Florida to use a leg hold trap, which we colloquially will call, you, we just use the term steel trap. And uh, matter of fact, we were the first state to outlaw it in 1974. Now, in the northern, I'll get to the story in a minute, but in the northern states, it's still a device that's legal up in Canada. And there's actually a lot of people up there that kind of, um, you know, gosh, they live part time by fur trapping. But here in Florida, it's just way too populated, and uh, it's not it's not a good not a good fit. In any case, so this guy, um, uh, we'll call him Tom. He he draws me a map. And he tells it's a really good map, and I drive my patrol truck down, and I hide it in a state forest nearby so nobody can find it, and uh, and walk down there. And um, I've got a backpack with me. I got a sandwich and a water bottle. I'm planning to stay all day, and I find I went in the day before and found the traps, and I threw one of the traps, meaning I I hit the uh, the treadle, and to release you know the the spring to close it up. And I wanted why, the reason why I did that was I wanted the trapper to have to kneel down, put his hands on that trap, and set it. Because if he didn't lay his hands on that trap, I didn't have squat. And I raked up around it, too. I took a stick to make it look like a coon has fought his way out of it. Anyway, the first day, um, I get there before sunrise. This is in the wintertime. And I lay in the ground. I have my raincoat on the ground. I lay there all day. I watch that sun cross the sky. Noon, one, two, three, four, five o'clock in the evening. It's going to get dark around 5.30ish that time of year. I hear a stick snap, and I watch a guy coming to me in the gloom. I can just barely see him, and but I, I can tell it's a big guy. It's an older guy, and it's the, this guy's father. that I'm after this. The kid I'm after, he's in his 20s, but it's his father. And he walks right by the trap. It's so dark, he can't see that it's thrown. I said to myself, oh, wonderful. I come back the next morning before daylight, and I, perce- I'm si- I, car- I carve a hole out in the middle of a palmetto patch. That's where I'm hiding. The sun crosses the sky again. I'm there for another 12 hours. It's a long sit, Andy. It's a long time. About 5 o'clock, here comes the sun, and he's in great shape. Okay, and I, Back then, I was a runner. I, I was running a lot. I competitively ran to the Police Olympics and everything. And his name was Bert. And so Bert has an axe with him. And that's, he uses that to, conk the, uh, to hit the, uh, the, any coons or any bobcats he finds. He's going to hit him in the head with it and kill it. But he sees the trap has been thrown, and he kneels down, and he puts his hands on it, and he spreads the jaws of the trap. And that's when I jump up and announce myself. And as soon as I did, he looked at me, and you, Annie, I know you've seen it. Across his forehead, I saw the imaginary word rabbit. And he turned, and he took off, <laughs> and the chase is on. And this is in a swamp. There's cypress knees. There's boggy areas. There's 
oh gosh, just everything you can imagine for obstacles. And so we're tripping and falling and sliding and all this slime. And we get to a large overblown, I believe it was a live oak, because now we start to to, uh, come out of the swamp approaching the upland. And, And there's a gap underneath it. And I elect, I, I've already told myself, I'm going underneath. I'm just going to take a headfirst diver. I'm going underneath. Well, he was nimble enough. He, he leapt up, grabbed the top of the, the, the log, and vaulted over it and kept running. I slid up down underneath and continued to chase him. We go through some thick brush, and now we come out into an opening. Now, this opening is a clearing where his, as it turns out, his father-in-law was a builder and had just poured a slab of concrete for the house he is fixing to build. Matter of fact, the, the cement truck is there, and we're hosing the cement truck down. And I'm seeing all this. There's six or seven people there. And Bert's in the open running. His father-in-law is yelling at him. I can see his father-in-law's mouth is moving. And Bert's running right toward that slab of concrete. And just before he <laughs> got to it, I yelled his name out. I said, Bert, halt! Because he didn't think I knew his name. That's why he was running. Okay? And when he did that, he he flipped his head around and looked at me, startled. He took two more steps. His toe caught the edge of that form, flipped in head first <laughs> to that fresh concrete. It was a, such a beautiful sight. And then when he got up, his rubber boots were filled with cement. He couldn't go anywhere. It was a beautiful moment. And, of course, now i got all of these people who are just raising cane with me. They're screaming. They're hollering. The father-in-law what is going on? And anyway, so there you go. There's, there's another catch. And that, that, of course, has a humorous component. So I do try to inject some humor in the book. And the first book, Backcountry Lawman, I would say has quite a bit more humor uh, than, than the second book because I, I, I kind of use – you know, a lot of these stories I'm involved with, so I, can, I, I don't mind pointing the finger at myself. You know, if I'm writing about somebody else, yeah, you know, you can't really do that so much. So, but there's, oh yeah, you got some humorous moments. Absolutely. Well, you had some scary ones like Vernon Bennett, the guy you ran over. Oh my gosh. That almost ended my career. Jesus. You know, and that was an accident on my, I mean, I mean, he went, <laughs> he was not resisting. So I'm going to try to, um, <clears throat> make this short i don't want to get too elaborate with the story but what had happened was i'm 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 again on water patrol now i'm in the south end of crescent lake crescent lake is basically it it is there's a tributary system that flows into the south end of it the lake runs for 13 miles it's 15,900 acres in size it flows out into the saint john's river at the very southern end of this lake um it's three o'clock in the morning i've taken Great. I've idled for three hours to get there, and um, and I shut my engine off, and I'm waiting for a bad guy to show up. Maybe a monkey fisherman, illegal fish trap, or whatever. Anyway, I hear this engine crank up along the shoreline. It's a very small engine, um, which which I find curious because most of the engines I'm, I'm listening to at that time they're like 200 horsepower, even if they're idling. You can tell the difference. But this sounded very small. And he was running black, blacked out, no navigation lights. And he runs along the shoreline, and it's like he took a um, uh, some sort of a, a heading, if you will. And then he went straight north out into the part of the lake I was sitting in, and it's dark of the moon. There's, you know, only the stars are out. 
And I'm watching it through binoculars, and all I can see is looks like this cigar-shaped boat black, and that's all I can see, just in the gloom. And he stops about 100 yards from it, and he starts running fish traps. And I can hear him emptying fish in the boat, and I know he's running traps for speckled perch. It is illegal in Florida to take speckled perch, which are a game fish, with wire fish traps. And so he proceeds to run these traps for about an hour. Now, he doesn't see me because he's not using binoculars. And when he leaves this trap, uh, and, and the reason I say he looked like he took a, a heading, I believe he had it triangulated with some lights in the distance where his trap line was, okay, because he's about a mile offshore. Anyway, when he leaves, he, he takes a heading that takes him almost right by, it takes pretty close to where I'm at. And I let him pass me, and I can see, gosh, he's going really slow. And I also know that these fish are going to be sacked. And in the bottom of that sack, and each of these sacks will be part of a cinder block. And I know this is part of the game. And I know when I've turned my light on, the first thing he's going to do is start chunking bags of fish overboard. And so I obviously want to stop him. And so I idle toward him, and I just put the boat on a half plane. I swear, not more than, I don't know, eight or ten miles an hour, because I know he's running slow. And it's very easy to overrun a boat. It's something, because I'm, I'm without lights, it's something... I learned to be very cognizant of early in my career is you don't want to overrun a slower boat. It's real easy. I put my headlamp on, put my blue light on, and, I, and I'm plowing toward him. And as soon as I light him up, he steps into the middle of the boat and starts chunks and sacks, sacks of fish over. This guy's 62 years old, okay? He'd never been caught. And so I lined the bow of the boat up with him. In my head, I thought, I'm just going to bump the boat and knock him off balance. Well, when I did, I my prow my boat soaking wet, and that the prow rides right up over his boat, right up over him, and he disappears beneath my boat. Now I throw it in the neutral because now I'm worried I'm going to run right over him and chop him in half. I throw it in the neutral, and the skeg of my boat runs into the side of his boat. Now my boat, and I'm running an 18-foot commercial fishing skip with a 200-horsepower engine on it, it sinks his boat. His boat and he are crossways underneath the water directly beneath me. And I was, as they say, I hate to use a word word, cliche, but I was literally sucking air. Because now I'm thinking, oh, my God, I have killed this guy. My career is, I mean, just all these thoughts are going through my head. Well, immediately I go to one side of the boat and I turn my headlamp down. I've got a very, very bright aircraft landing lamp on the helmet I'm using. And it's, the water's kind of tannic, but I look down, and I don't see anything. I, I run over to the other side of the boat. I look down, and I can see a white T-shirt. I reach down with both hands and snatch him up out of the water. And he's blowing water and air. I said, Mr. Bender, Mr. Bender, are you all right? He just nods his head. I said, okay. He said, and, and I said, I just want you to kind of sit in your boat, because now his boat's completely flooded. I said, just give me a moment. I said, I'm going I'm to take care of you. I said, I, just let me, I'm going to reverse off your boat. And, and, and then I looked at it. It was made out of cypress. And I said, your boat's going to pop up, I think. So I just eased off of it, and his boat, sure enough, popped up. So about two inches of the gunwales or gunnels were exposed. And as soon as I did that, he didn't say a word, and he not a word. Calm as can be, he picks up a, what would be, you all or up north would call a snow shovel, and he used that for scooping fish, and he starts scooping out water from the boat doesn't say a word to me i said mr bennett i said i said you put that put 
double down. I said, I'll empty your water out. Let me get in there. I'm going to, you know. So we get his boat emptied of water, and he's just sitting there. He's got a scratch on her head, on his head. And uh, by now, I've called my supervisor. But my supervisor, obviously, nobody can get to you quick. And, um, and so while he's sitting there, finally I got his boat scooped out, and he looked like he was okay. He just wasn't saying anything. Very calm. I think, you know, he'd done this his entire life, Annie, and he'd never been caught. And I think, I think he finally realized, you know, his time was up. And so while I'm sitting there waiting for my supervisor, I tell him, I said, and I threw, I threw a marker out. We always you know, I carried marker buoys. I threw a, a marker buoy out as soon as I, well, began to run over his boat just to mark the spot. Anyway, <laughs> short of it is I threw a trap drag out a few times and came up with one of the bags of fish, about 65 pounds of speckled birch. Never did recover the others, but that was enough for me to eventually charge him. I needed to charge him with something. But, um, but golly, I uh, – yeah, I was very fortunate on that one. So those are some of the things that happen where things go south and uh, didn't mean for it to happen, but, uh, oh, man. Uh, <laughs> need, needless to say, the, uh, the commercial fishermen, they had, uh, in that community, they had a little bit to say about that afterwards. So uh, this is a small community. Everybody knows everybody, you know. And, oh, uh, gosh, that was, that was the talk of the county for a while, so. Kind of like when I think so well, they you, had a good that, that was that was really good to them too the commercial fishermen by the way they thoroughly enjoyed that when they learned I'd sunk my boat and swim <laughs> out of the river. So. All right. Well, it, it, there's so many good stories in in both books. Um, there was one really sad one in Bad Guys, Bullets, and Boat Chases that you start off with. That was the Eastern Airline Flight 401 that yeah. crashed into yeah. the Everglades. There, um, that was that was really horrific. Um, I forgot that about that, and it's funny because uh, at that time my mother owned a travel agency, so things like that we were very, very attuned to, which I later on right. became a partner with her. Um, but I do remember the story about the stewardess getting the survivors she could gather together to sing Christmas carols. Yes, and it was yes. You guys show up on the scene, or not you personally, but you know the game wouldn't show yeah. up on the scene because they were the closest there. Um, and they hear Christmas carols yeah. being sung in this whole big field of carnage. And they, you yes. hear Christmas carols. Yeah, her name was uh, Beverly Raposa. The game warden's name is Gray Leonard. He would, at that time, he was only a two-month rookie, but he would later uh, go on to become my supervisor for seven years when I was a, a, a rookie patrol officer. And, and since then, we've, you know, we've maintained a friendship. Uh, but Beverly Posa, I interviewed her for an hour on the telephone. She's the stewardess you're talking about, very petite. Uh, matter of fact, she told me, she says, you know, Bob, I'm, I'm five foot one and a half. And the standard back then to be a stewardess was five foot two. So I always wore, she was, she was a pretty gal, and she always wore this, her brunette hair up in a, what they call a high bouffant. I hope I'm pronouncing it right. So that it would make her look taller. Um, but, you know, she was tough. She'd been raised on a 160-acre dairy in Rhode Island. She was the leader of the Girl Scouts, and uh, she told me and she was injured. Her back was injured. Her leg was injured. She was cut up, and um, when she got to that section of the plane where there was another stewardess there with a broken hip, she rallied the troops, and, um, gosh, she, and finally they, they were some of the last to be rescued because they were – her group was kind of cast off in the main, the main group, if you will, 
And she, yeah, she had them singing Christmas carols. And Gray Leonard, the officer I write about in that story, can actually remember hearing this Christmas carols being sung. And he, a Coast Guardman actually told him later that he believed it was a stewardess that had, um, you know, her passengers that she'd kind of been responsible for um, doing that, leading leading them in song. And they, they started with Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer. But it's an interesting story. That particular angle has never been told. That story has been told many times, two books, a couple of movies, a great documentary by uh, a Flight 401 by National Geographic is available online as well. Uh, and I also in, 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 interviewed a stewardess who uh, – it's not a stewardess – a man who survived the crash too, Ron Infantino. Unfortunately, uh, his wife uh, was killed in the accident, but – yeah, it's a sad story, and also tell toward the end of that story about a rescue that uh, Gray conducted with the Coast Guard. And if it hadn't been for Gray, seeing this hole in the wax myrtles looked like a cannon shot had gone through it. And, and they investigated that hole and found one of the survivors in there about 50 yards. He had been ejected like a cannonball, flown parallel to the surface of the Everglades, and gone in sideways uh, into this a willow patch that was probably an acre in size. And when Gray saw that sign, and it looked like the size of a culvert, and all the branches were broken off inwards, if you will, and they followed that, and they found him. He had a broken arm, but um, he tells me, Gray told me in my interview with him that he wasn't certain, but he believed that was the last person rescued um, just before daylight, you know, uh, from, from that accident, Flight 401. Oh, it, it's, a, it's a heck of a story. Um, there were 176 people on board. It's 101 fatalities, you know, so and 75 survived. So. And I tell it from different it's perspectives. Amazing. It's not just Gray. I change up scenes. I tell what's happening from Gray's point of view. Then we switch scenes, and I tell what's happening going on in the plane, why the plane crashed, what's going on with Beverly Raposa and Ron Infantino, and then what happens with them after the crash and what happens with gray after the crash so three three different points of view i, I follow in that story it's a very, the first very jumbo jet story first the first jumbo jet by the way to ever crash and at the time the worst airline disaster uh um in the united states at that time yeah at that time <coughs> excuse me um it is excellent books. People can find your books by going to your website, which is actually your name, very simple, bobhlee.com, correct? Correct, bobhlee.com. I've got the books there with links to Amazon. They can be purchased at all online booksellers. Uh, and we used to be able to purchase, purchase at all the brick-and-mortar stores in Florida. However, Barnes & Noble, I don't know if they've opened up yet or not. So. But you, they can be purchased online, uh, and the easy way, if you want to learn more about me and some of the things that we did with the agency, I was also the lead man tracking instructor for the agency for about 10 years. I've got a tracking page. I've also got a page devoted to Roger Gunner, the poacher, and so bobhlee.com, and uh, there you go. That's the easy way to do it. Well, Bob, it's been so much fun talking to you, and when Curtis comes back on air, when he gets back home, we'll have to have you come back on again. There's so many stories. Hey, that would be great. Listen, it's, it's been delightful, and uh, I wish you the best, and thank you again, and, and also Curtis and Absence for uh, for having me on. I've enjoyed it immensely. Thanks. No, take care. God bless. Bye. All right. 
bobhlee.com. Check out his books. I mean, there's a lot of fun reading. I really had a lot of fun. And to hear it from his side, uh, some of them are really hysterical. You listen to some of the chases and stuff he's gotten into. Uh, it's, uh, we're waiting for our last guest to call in, uh, Dr. Lee Edwards from the Heritage Foundation. Um, but while we're waiting for him, um, <clears throat> excuse me, I got like a tickle in my throat. I'm just pulling up some of my other articles I put aside to talk about. And I unfortunately have no co-host, so I am going solo at this moment. Um, there was an article. This was up where? Uh, Flag and Cross. That it's confirmed that uh, there are more people dead in California from suicide than the COVID uh, virus. Uh, this is out of Walnut Creek, California, and doctors at the John Murr Medical Center in Walnut Creek say they've seen more deaths by suicide during this quarantine period than deaths from the COVID-19 virus. Uh, the head of the trauma in the department believes mental health is suffering so much it is time to end the shelter-in-place order. So uh, this is this is what I was talking about before, that there are and also, you know, our previous guests were discussing that there are more people that are dying from cancer, dying from suicide, than dying from the virus. If you can't get to the doctor, get your diagnosis, you've got a, a death warrant on you. Um, if you're locked in your home and you're suffering from some sort of mental illness, you may be more likely uh, to commit suicide or harm yourself or someone else. You know, it's, uh, this is, this is, not just about the virus. I think it's about controlling us and controlling the election in November. If they make it look like Trump did something absolutely horrible, um, then they're hoping that they would get <laughs> Biden as president. Oh, good Lord. And imagine if he takes Stacey Abrams, like I suspect he might do as vice presidential candidate. Oh, geez. Holy moly. Anyway, there's a new poll that came out just a couple of days ago that shows now Trump is leading Biden in Pennsylvania by four points. That is that is amazing. That is absolutely amazing. So the tide is turning, folks. Let me bring in our next guest who is waiting patiently on the line. And the latest victim of the show is Dr. Lee Edwards of the Heritage Foundation. Good afternoon, Dr. Edwards. How are you? Good afternoon, Annie. I'm fine. I hope you're well and good down there in South Carolina, I believe. <clears throat> Oh, yeah. Yeah, we're, we're surviving. <laughs> we're, we're having fun down here. <laughs> you know, I was looking at uh, your uh, bio that's up on the Heritage Foundation. Uh, people can go heritage.org to get it, and there's a link on the show page so people can click on it and learn more about you. Um, I was looking at some of the honors that you had, which is the Order of Merit from the Republic of Hungary, the Millennial Star of Lithuania, the Course of Terra Marina uh, out of Estonia, how did you miss Latvia? <laughs> We're still waiting to hear from them. <laughs> <laughs> well, the reason why that caught my eye, if you notice my last name, it happens to be Latvian. My husband, his family were from Latvia. So, uh, right. I, well, yeah, I've, so I, I did, have I, visited I Latvia, and it's a terrific uh, Baltic country, uh, wonderfully anti-communist. And uh, and pro-capitalist as well, so uh, it's one of my favorite countries in uh, in Europe. Well, I have never been there. Um, I got as far as let's see, Norway, Sweden, Denmark, Spain, Portugal, but mm -hmm. I've never right. been to the Baltic right. States. Yeah, yeah. 
Uh, now, you mentioned Denmark, Annie. That's one of the things I always like to say about uh, about Denmark. You know, our, our friends here who are socialists keep referring to Denmark as a socialist country. And what I do is quote to them the prime minister of Denmark, who visited Washington, D.C. a couple of years ago, spoke at the National Press Club. And he looked out at all of these august uh, people of the press and said, now, I want to say one thing first of all. Denmark is not socialist. And you can imagine all the jaws that were dropping (laughs) and the intakes of breath of people. Wait a minute now. And he said, no, no, no. We have a private and free enterprise system which generates all of the various products and things that we have going here. We do have a welfare state, no question about that, and we tax people pretty high for it. But we do it because we let the free enterprise system work and generate all that income that we then can can spend on welfare. (laughs) (laughs) Well, you see, it it makes a case for your article, the case for capitalism. It's perfect, isn't it? Yes. Well, you know, Annie, it's basically what we have to do. We have to educate people about what capitalism is, and then we do have to spend some time turning around and explaining what socialism is not. Uh, and the way I like to sum it up in terms of capitalism is that no, well, let's put it this way, it has brought greater wealth and more freedom to more people than any other system in history. And it's just those are just the facts. Uh, and I'm not quoting uh, only conservative sources on that. But the World Bank has come out with a report which said that in the last decade, one billion-plus people have left the poverty line and have become uh, you know, middle class and lower middle class. One billion people. And it has happened in country after country, which has adopted capitalism, free enterprise, if you will, the private sector, and which has abandoned socialism. And those are just the facts. And been backed up also by the Heritage Foundation. We have a wonderful thing called the Index of Economic Freedom. And we've been tracking this for 30 years along with the Wall Street Journal as a co-publisher and editor. And we have seen the same thing as well, that in those countries which have more economic freedom, there is more prosperity and more political freedom than in the socialist countries. Look at poor Venezuela. Oh, Absolutely. Your heart goes out to them. And I, I had the pleasure of visiting a Caracas when it was at the height of its wealth. Mm. And it was such a beautiful, beautiful country. And it's, it's such a loss. At the same time, I went to Bogota. Uh, and that was where I had this machine gun put in my face by a soldier. So oh, my goodness. You see, wow. wow. You see the, the difference in the two countries. And they're right there next to each other. And it's just heartbreaking to see what's going on there now. Anyway, um, we're, we, now I just lost my train of thought. <laughs> if, you, if you compare the poorest person here in the United States to other countries, they are far wealthier. <clears throat> and you say, all right, fine, they're living on the street. How do they have wealth? Well, they do have the opportunity to go into shelters. <clears throat> they do have the opportunity to seek help. Uh, you don't have that opportunity in other poor countries. If you're dirt poor and you're living in the street, there is no way for you to get yourself up. Well, that's so true, Annie, and you know uh, that 
it's true that under under capitalism in, in this country and elsewhere, until the uh, uh, coronavirus uh, came along, the pandemic came along, uh, that the rich were definitely getting richer, but at the same time, the poor were getting richer as well. And if you take a look at all of the various income, not just the cash which a, a poor person, alleged poor person, is uh, producing, but look at all the other things which they have. The average poor, quote, has a car, air conditioning, the Internet, and television. The average poor person in America, as you just said, lives far better than the average middle-class person in most of the world. Well, we have someone in the chat room that pointed out that in the U.S. we have people who are both poor and fat. How many other countries can say that your poor people are fat? <laughs> right. Right. It's right. a good point, right? It is a very, a very Indeed. good point. Indeed. Indeed. Uh, oh, man. You know, there's so much to say for, you know, our economic system here. Uh, you made a point about, you know, how a person that is considered poor can become rich. Uh, one of the other things I noticed, I, I'm just losing my train of thought today. This is what happens when I don't have a co-host. <laughs> uh, oh, I know. It was uh, income inequality. Where the heck did that idea come from? Who says that if I bust my butt and work super hard in a job, the guy who's sitting in the chair just doing nothing gets to earn the same wage that I get? Where did we accept this thing with a minimum wage? You must pay me a minimum wage even if I really don't do a good job. Instead of paying a person for what they are worth, the value of the person and the value of the work. When did we stop that? In the 70s? Well, yes, I think so. But also have to keep in mind, Annie, that the socialists have been working on this for well over a century. We can go all the way back uh, to the progressives like uh, like a Woodrow Wilson or even Theodore Roosevelt, up through Roosevelt, Theodore, uh, Franklin Delano Roosevelt, Lyndon Bates Johnson, and Barack Obama, that the socialists and the democratic socialists have been working for a hundred years, for a century, to tear down capitalism and to build up socialism. And it's no wonder if you take a look at uh, the attitudes of young people who say they would rather live under socialism than than uh, capitalism, free enterprise, because that's all they know. But if you start asking them certain questions, which we try to do at Heritage and elsewhere, and say, well, you know, one of the first, uh, maybe the first law of socialism under Marx would be to do away with private property. Do you really want to give up your iPhone? <laughs> do you really want to give up your <laughs> iPad? You know, uh, I think that you begin to make them realize just exactly what socialism would mean to them and the way that they can live at the present time. And, the, of course, one of the ironies, as you know, Annie, is that capitalism is responsible for all of these young socialists being able to talk about socialism. <laughs> you know, I also get a kick out of it when they turn around and say, we've got to get off of fossil fuels. No more drilling for oil. We've got to get off of oil. And I simply ask them, <clears throat> name me one thing in your life, outside of stepping outside and taking a breath of fresh air, one thing in your life that does not, that is not produced by petrochemicals. There's, there's nothing mm-hmm. they can answer. Right. Yeah. 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 Well, I think this this is the kind of, you know, fact finding and the kind of 
fact, publicizing, which which we have to do. Uh, in working on this article of mine about the case for capitalism, we looked at five metropolitan areas uh, in which there is a majority or a near majority of blacks, everything from Atlanta to Washington, D.C., uh, and so forth. In these five metropolitan areas over the last decade and a half, the income, the average income of the household has gone up between 7% and 21%. Now, this was all before the virus came along and hit us, that African Americans were prospering under our system of private enterprise, under our capitalist system. Uh, and that has to be driven home, the fact that uh, uh, the unemployment rate among African Americans is at lowest ever. 50 years, uh, the unemployment rate among Hispanics, the lowest ever. So in, in place after place that we look at, we can see that capitalism produces more prosperity, more freedom, and it's because really they've discovered, those people who believe in it, that freedom works. It works to the advantage of more people than any other system. Well, if we, as, as a historian, you are fully aware that the African-American community was very prosperous <clears throat> prior to the big social experiment of Lyndon Baines John. When he came out with welfare, when they came out with Social Security, uh, they actually destroyed families, and the black community got hit the hardest by these social programs. And that certainly is true, and that has been documented, Annie, to to uh, chapter and verse by that great great economist out at the Hoover Institution, Thomas Sowell, who has written I don't know ten, twenty, thirty books, looking at various aspects of this and talking precisely and making precisely the point that you've just made that the family, the African American family, began to go into decline with the Great Society, with the idea that. Uh, what we have to do is to give people everything and not require anything back from them in return. Yeah, we see uh, higher uh, divorce rates, fewer marriages, more out-of-wedlock uh, children. And if, when all this lines up, you also see less education. Very few of them would then further go on to college. If we allow people to work for whatever it is they, they wish, you see solid families, marriages that last, higher income, higher education, less sickness, less disease, less mental health problems. But instead, it was the exact opposite. It's a, it's a tragic story, and it needs to be told, but I'm, I'm afraid it's not being told enough in our schools, in our colleges and universities. You know, one of the things also that uh, I've tried to document and uh, – and that is that people say socialism uh, has never failed because it's never been tried. Uh, well, <laughs> excuse me, but there are three democratic countries which, since World War II, have tried and have socialism for a period of up to 20, 20 years, a quarter of a century, and then rejected it. And they are Israel, India, and Great Britain. And when I point this out to people, again, their jaws drop and they, don't, they cannot believe it, that 
Israel back in 1948 was founded by socialists coming out of Eastern Europe, settling there uh, in the Middle East after after being behind the Iron Curtain after all of those decades under communism, and decided they were going to make it into a socialist paradise. And they did that for some 20, 25 years. And then inflation hit them, uh, population hit them, a war hit them, and they all of a sudden realized that socialism wasn't working. They took a vote, and they threw out the socialists, brought in the free enterprisers, the capitalists, and with that, things turned around. Inflation in Israel was 400%, 400%, and it dropped down to a much more normal 5 10% as a result of this switch. Uh, if we look at India, uh, in its constitution, it says right out that we are a socialist uh, republic. Socialism is in their constitution. It's in their statement of purpose. And so from 1948 through the 1960s and 70s again, under following this, the socialist line. As a result of that, at the end of that experiment, that painful experiment, 50% of India was in poverty, 50%. It just you know, blows your mind away to think of that. Again, they realized they couldn't allow this. They changed, went to down, decided to go down the capitalist road and not the socialist road. And as a result, today in India, you have the largest middle class in the world, something like 200 million uh, people from India are now middle class because they've adopted free enterprise and, so, and uh, capitalist views. And finally, Great Britain, uh, the labor government uh, came in in the 1940s after World War II. Twenty-five years later, they were called, Europe was called, Britain was called the sick man of Europe. Uh, fortunately for them, they elected the first female prime minister in British history, a conservative named Margaret Thatcher. She turned mm -hmm. things around, denationalized, privatized, and as a result of it, Britain became the mo one of the most prosperous industrial societies, once again, uh, in the world. Now, those are three examples in India uh, of India, Israel, and Great Britain, who tried it and rejected it. And I think that's the kind of information, the kind of education, which we need to give to our young people. Well, I want to bring you around to this <clears throat> pandemic, this virus. Because Rand Paul, uh, Senator Rand Paul and Representative Andy Biggs recently wrote an op-ed about the coronavirus. And they were saying Dr. Anthony Fauci has emasculated the healthcare system and ruined the economy because he was using uh, models that were later found to be deficient. You know, what is your, your view on this? Well, I think this is, this is uh, so difficult to get at. And uh, I don't doubt that that uh, Senator, you know, Rand had all, had, Rand Paul had all kinds of back backup statistics to prove his point, pointing at this is the good model, this is the bad model. But at the same time, I frankly I get confused because then people will come right back and say, but no, this model makes sense and this contradicts the model which you've just mentioned. So uh, I'm I'm not somebody who has studied frankly this carefully. Uh, I'm not a statistician. And so I'm, I'm a little bit reluctant to get into uh, a discussion about it, although I do think that the senator 
makes a very good point, and that is if you base what you're saying on the wrong model, you're going to come to the wrong conclusions. And certainly our economy has been emasculated, as you've just said, has been hurt, has been damaged, has been injured. But I, I agree with the president that I think we're on the brink of what may be a remarkable turnaround. Why do I think that? Because the same people who didn't understand the virus, I think, don't understand our free enterprise system, our capitalist system. And if you allow people to get in there and to do that kind of work, which will produce wealth and prosperity, then I think we're going to have an extraordinary turnaround starting in about another maybe three months, four months before the end of the uh, end of the year. Well, um, I know it's been all over the news what's going on in Minnesota. And uh, having worked in Brooklyn uh, back in the 80s, uh, when I got there, there still burned out buildings from the riots that happened in the 60s and 70s. So I know how it decimates the economy in local neighborhoods. But we're seeing this happen again now. For some reason, just before the election, we get the anarchists to come out and they destroy entire neighborhoods. It happened in Baltimore, Los Angeles, everyone with the Occupy Wall Street group. And now they're doing it again. Um, do you see this stopping, or is it? do you think it's going to expand more of these anarchies? Well, I think that, first of all, uh, one has to, has to condemn the, uh, uh, the rioting, the uh, destruction, which goes on the uh, total disregard for for law and order, and that has to be has to be condemned. At the same time, um, I think we probably you've you've seen the same video that I saw of what uh, those policemen did to that uh, one uh, African American, uh, and that is unacceptable. That is definitely something that cannot be allowed to continue. And I think if you sort of Put yourself in the in the attitude of an African American, and, and you see and ask yourself, "Here we go again," and you'll you'll get a very emotional response, a very uh, an irrational response, if you will, uh, and that's terribly unfortunate. And it seems to me that you must begin to bring together these communities and try to arrive at an understanding wherein each side makes a a, a pledge, if you will, that they're not going to engage on the one hand in this kind of wanton um, uh, use of force against, uh, I don't know whether he was that armed or not, but also at the same time not to condone the kind of rioting and demonstrating which has been going on in Minneapolis. But I think you have to do both. You can't do one or the other. Yeah, I, I completely agree. Um because I'll tell you, the training I had, they said if you handcuffed, if you have him under control, and he's no longer resisting, you, that's it. You step back, you wait, you make the arrest, you put him in the car, you get him to the precinct, you book him, and case closed. But mm -hmm. never, ever, ever in any training did they have you using a choke code or doing anything putting pressure on the neck to prevent a person from breathing. And right. if a person isn't in distress, you also have to take care of that person if they are in distress what that officer did was everything opposite of what we are trained to do and i will condemn him honestly and i will let the courts decide let it go to the courts let it go legally 
but to see the neighborhoods, and you know probably most of those people went in there uh, weren't even from the local neighborhood. They just wanted to go for a free shop, shopping, shopping trip, which what it looked like. And they actually decimated that neighborhood, and it's going to take, I'm not going to say years, probably decades for that neighborhood to return. Yes, you're right. Uh, I live in Washington, or I work in Washington, D.C., and I've lived in D.C., and I know what happened to uh, our city, the city, after the assassination of uh, Martin Luther King. Uh, and that took, you're right, it took not just years, but took decades to finally make that come around and to be able to open up those shops and stores and to get traffic moving once again. It was a tragedy. And that's that's the inevitable outcome if you have these kinds of riots. But I, I couldn't put the case better than you've just done, Annie, in talking about that policeman being so totally uh, out of out of whack to be to carry be carried away like that and to do that kind of a thing to visit upon uh, an a an unarmed person not cannot be allowed. Well, as a as a person that's uh, owned small business, I've managed uh, mid-sized law firms. Um, I know that. When people try to come back into that neighborhood, the liability insurance on those businesses is going to be through the roof. Who is going to rebuild a building if their cost is going to be skyrocketed? Of course, who's going to take that risk? Who's willing to? I doubt anyone is. Those businesses probably will be gone forever. It is. That's that's a tragedy. And um, I visited Minneapolis, and it's a wonderful city filled with, with uh, wonderful uh, civic-minded uh, people who, uh, who run, in the, run the affairs there. Um, there's, a, there's a wonderful spirit there, a wonderful American spirit in Minneapolis, and it's tragic what's happening right now. So we do hope, and I'm sure you would agree, that we hope that justice will be served and that uh, the proper punishment will be leveled at that, uh, at that policeman. Absolutely. Huge amen. Dr. Lee, I'm looking at the clock. We've got just a few minutes left on the show. The the whole show is going so fast, as always. But um, at the Heritage, you do a lot of wonderful work there. What's the latest project you're working on with them? Well, we we are looking right now at how we can get our country, you know, working again. And so we have had a whole – we have a thing called Mandate for Leadership – which is uh, being published in fact, we gave the first issue to President Trump just this week. Uh, matter of fact, may have been yesterday, uh, in which we lay out a, a, a ten-point program, which includes taxes, which includes investment, which includes uh, uh, pro- pro- provisions with regard to trade, <clears throat> which will get our country back on its feet, back on track, making profit once again. And, you know, one of the things in which we try to do uh, is to explain the difference between capitalism and socialism. So that's part of what we're of our educational program in our mandate for leadership. And one of the most stark images we can provide, Annie, is the Korean peninsula. And if you take a look at South Korea and North Korea and from a satellite position, you look down at the peninsula, you will see South Korea lit up like a Christmas mm-hmm. tree. And you'll look at North Korea, and it's dark. It's black. It, it is a wasteland. Yep. It is a wasteland. And that is the difference as far as we're concerned 
between socialism and capitalism, free enterprise, if you will. And we're going to keep telling that story until people begin to (laughs) accept it and begin disseminating themselves. Absolutely. Dr. Lee Edwards, thank you for all the hard work you do. And people can read your article, The Case for Capitalism, online and check you out at heritage.org. Thank you so, so much, Annie. Really have enjoyed this and in the hope to talk to you again soon. Take care. All right. Take care. God bless. All Bye-bye. right. Folks, that's all we that's all we got for today, guys. Uh we will be back. Uh we are lining up guests for next weekend. Um as I said, we're now you'll find us up on iHeartRadio. We started over there. I don't know when, but I know that I found us over there. Uh Curtis hopefully will be back next week as my co host, so I stopped fudging things up. <laughs> messing everything up really bad. Anyway, I want to thank everyone listening over here in the chat room up on Facebook. Um and I will see you all, I guess, next week. So be safe and I'll talk to you then. So I'll close you out with our song When the Roll is Called Up Yonder. I say good night and God bless. <laughs>